like you're going to die soon. You're going to be taken away from your family, your siblings, your friends. You're going to be out of this world. You're never going to see them again. They're not going to see you again. Such a young age too. Yeah. I, I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. I was just starting to you know, be quite successful in my career at that time. Uh, all these things just came crashing down and nothing... It, it, it's it's like everything was just washed away almost. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Second Floor Podcast. I'm your co-host, Kenny Buller. And on the show, we talk about how to survive, how to thrive, and keep the good vibes going in both life and business. On today's episode, we bring to you a very special individual, Michael Yishjishin. Michael happens to be a corporal officer for the RCMP. And while he was going about his position, his job, his career, in which he loves, this is a man, I swear to you, who I've never met compared to anyone else who loves his job so much. He ended up being diagnosed with cancer. He was diagnosed with optic nerve glioma, which resulted in his doctors telling him that he has 50% chance of living. At this time, Michael did everything he possibly could to recover and to beat cancer. And he joins with us today to talk about how successfully he did beat it. But also, he talked about some of the consequences he faced, as well as the hardships and the roadblocks that came afterwards for him to continue being a corporal officer under the RCMP. This is a man that, to tell you the truth, I've never met anyone else like him. He not only fought for his life, but soon after, he did whatever he could to fight for his career, to continue doing what he likes to do on the ground as an officer. Michael ended up negotiating with the National Medical Advisor for the RCMP. He also did what he could to fight to make his way back after eye cancer, speaking with National Policy Center with multiple individuals. He also had conversations with the Director General of Occupational Health and Safety. Multiple times over with these organizations within RCMP, he fought and convinced them and essentially created a study letting them know that he is fit and able to go back into the workplace to do what he loves and what he's best at. On today's episode, we're going to go in great detail and hear from Michael himself the story of how he survived and brought himself back into the work and life in which he loves. We bring to you our very first official sponsor, Lux Market. Our official sponsor would like to bring to your attention www.luxmarket.com. That's L-U-X-M-R-K-T.com. Luxmarket.com brings to you brand new and consigned luxury menswear straight to your door at extremely affordable prices. Brand names sold on Lux Market include the brands you know and love. Come on, we're talking Gucci, we're talking Hugo Boss, Brioni, and Canali with a value of 50 to 90% off its retail price. How can you say no to that? Fun fact, Lux Market, L-U-X-M-R-K-T, is actually born and raised in our local city where we started the podcast in Edmonton, Alberta. And as you all know, we love bringing to your attention towards products, services, people, which we know our audience would actually want to invest their time and money into. 
So why did Lux Market choose to be a sponsor of the Second Floor Podcast? It was actually a perfect fit. The owner, Simon, he's a big fan of the podcast. He loves the local guests in which we actually bring to everyone's attention. And he enjoys the topics that are relevant and beneficial to his personal life as well as the business aspect of things. He found that not only was he a fan of the podcast, but some of his actual customers are listeners as well. So for those of you who are customers listening to this, thank you. As well, if he and those he knew were listening, then other like-minded people were listening as well, thus resulting into the perfect match for potential customers. Now is your chance to not only keep the good vibes going in your life and business, but also elevate your wardrobe to the next level. Go online today, ladies and gentlemen, on www.luxmrkt.com, that's luxmarket.com, to view the current collections available now. Thank you. And as at this time, we'd like to bring you back to Michael Yushjashin. Thing I want to ask Michael yes. is guide me through the moment you realized that you were diagnosed with cancer and what specific cancer was it that you were diagnosed with? Certainly. So this started uh, a number of years ago now and uh, at the time uh, I was working in drug section and uh, I'd been working on a heroin trafficking file. I'd been typing uh, search warrants lengthy periods of time, 8, 10, 12, 14 hours some days, and I started to, in my right eye only, develop a little bit of a blur, just a tiny little spot, almost uh, the size of, you know, those pencils with the, uh, those old pencils that had little racers at the top? Yeah, yeah. It's about that big, but it was my right eye only, so with both eyes open, I couldn't tell, but when I'd close my left eye, my good eye, I could see that little blurry spot, mm -hmm. so I started to suspect something was wrong, I thought I needed glasses, went saw an optometrist who uh, had told me that there was uh, some inflammation behind my eye. They weren't quite sure what it was, but they decided to send me to a specialist. Mm -hmm. So I go to a specialist. He puts me on a uh, regimen of drugs to try to resolve the issue. Doesn't resolve it. And then uh, shortly before Christmas, he's, he's quite concerned because it hasn't resolved itself. So he sends me to another specialist in Edmonton. So I see a specialist here, and I, I started to really get the hunch that things were not going well. It was, I, I believe, about 5, 5.30 at night, right around his closing time, mm -hmm. where he tells me, we're going to send you to the Royal Alec for an MRI, like right now. I'm like, okay, that's, that's not good. Normally it takes quite a, quite a while to get an MRI, so you're sending me there right now? Okay. Yeah. And then come back when you're done. You're closed, though. You're going to be closed by then. It's fine. I'll wait here. So now I'm thinking, okay, I'm, I'm definitely in trouble. Something's up. This is more than just a you know, me needing glasses or something. So I go to the Royal Alec, they do an MRI, I come back, and I could see it on the doctor's face before he even said it. He, he closes the door, he's with his assistant, it's about 7 o'clock at night at this point, well past his closing time. And he's got this somber look on his face and says, we've found a tumor in your optic nerve behind your eye. So uh, that really sucked. I was there by myself. I wasn't anticipating any of this. It, uh, no pun intended, kind of blindsided me. Yeah. And um, they then said, we're going to send you to uh, another specialist 
the following day, an ophthalmologist. So I go to the Royal Alec, I meet with the ophthalmologist, and he does his assessment, he goes through some stuff with me, and they decide to operate the very next day. And it's a very, very sensitive operation because you've got the eye and the brain connected by the optic nerve. And within the optic nerve itself, Mm -hmm. there's about a million and a half nerve fibers. They're essentially the connection points from the eye to the brain, and they they, uh, go from both eyes to the chiasm, intertwine, and then connect at various points along the brain. So it's a very sensitive surgery to go into that optic nerve. So essentially what they did was they went in through my eye, they made a small incision, part of the tumor poured out, they were able to cut a piece off and sample it for biopsy. So that type of cancer is called an optic nerve glioma. It's very rare in adults, I believe. It's it's roughly one in a million. Yeah. And there's uh, four classifications for it. Grades one and two, which are slow grade, mm-hmm. and grades three and four, which are high grade. That's not to be confused with stages one, two, three, or four. It yeah. simply speaks to, to speed of growth. Sure. So one and two progresses slowly. Three and four are very rapidly. So they do their sampling thing. It comes back low grade. Everything's fine. You're going to be okay. I actually returned to work uh, weeks after after that surgery. And then it was a number of months later on a follow-up where I go in for an MRI, and they were quite concerned as the tumor had grown. So they booked me in to come back a week later. They do another MRI. And then that's when they tell me, you know, you've got, you've got cancer. It's growing at a, at a pretty rapid rate. Um, you're going to have to undergo another surgery. We're going to take out as much as we can. And then you're going to go through about a month and a half of radiation every day. Wow. That was very difficult to hear. Compared to the first time. Compared to the first time. Because the first it seemed like it was a quick fix. Exactly, yeah. I mean, they say, okay, you've got a tumor. Okay, that sucks. But, but how bad is it? Because there's lots of many different forms of cancer. Some, some of them are, are really not that bad. Yeah. Um, all things considered. So one of the, the questions at the forefront of my mind with that was, well, you know, what's my survivability going to look like here? And the doctor had said, well, you know, for five years, you're looking at a 75% chance to live another five years, which I thought was actually pretty good. All things considered, wow. 75% chance to live another five years. Yeah. I'll take that. Yeah, that's That's, fine. that's all right. Yeah, looking at optimistically. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so... Uh, then I asked the question of, well, what about what about ten years? Because it was my belief that the further, the more, the longer you live, the the better that chance gets. Yeah. Unfortunately, not the case. He had told me it's about a fifty-five percent chance to make ten years. Wow! And that's when I had, pro- I think that's when I had my yeah, that's when I had my first real, real breakdown with that diagnosis. I uh, I just kind of fell apart after that. Yeah. I, uh, I'd been writing all the information he gave me, and thankfully I did because otherwise I would have forgotten about ninety percent of it. Yeah. And I, I just I completely broke down. He was he was very compassionate with me. He uh, he let me stay in his office for another about fifteen twenty minutes. Mm-hmm. Even after he had left, he said, "You know, take all the time you need." Absolutely. I just earth shattering news. Yeah, I was uh, I, I was bawling my eyes out, quite frankly. And, and especially uh, like if I can ask this too, Michael, I sure. can imagine that. A doctor in that point in time is, is it in a way more optimistic to share the five-year news than to even tell you what to expect in 10 years until you brought it to his attention. That's very, very true. Very accurate. I, I don't know that he, would have, uh, that he would have brought that up had I not asked, but I wanted to know. And so then I, I went to the parking lot 
I sat in my car for about an hour and just thought about what I was going to do with my life and how that was going to impact me. And then I underwent the surgery again, same thing. They went in through the eye. They took out more of the tumor, trying to spare the optic nerves because, again, it's a very sensitive surgery. And then I underwent radiation every day for a month after that, after I had recovered sufficiently to undergo the radiation. Radiation is not pleasant. Um, it's, it starts out not too bad. Uh, it's more psychological than anything, but over a period of time, uh, the, the pain got really bad. I was, I was actually working out for most of my time mm-hmm. while I was undergoing radiation, but okay. it was about a week or a week and a half before my last dose that I had to stop because I was just too weakened. Yeah. Because the uh, my, my whole face was essentially being traumatized every time I was getting doses of radiation to kill it's the painful. tumor. Exactly, it was very yeah. painful. I uh, I still remember I was in the bathroom. I just finished showering, and normally I would grab a towel and very gently dab my face to dry off. Mm-hmm. I was tired, wasn't paying attention. I wiped my face, and my knees buckled, and I almost dropped. Wow, sensitive, right? It was very sensitive. Wow. It was so raw that if you if you touched it, it would almost stick, almost. Wow. And so you can imagine sleeping was very difficult because yeah. you can't. Can't even turn over to put your face on anything. No, right? and as soon as you do, you wake up like that. And, and how about up. showering? Could you like when water goes onto your face? It it was tolerable, yeah. but not great. So I, I expected the pain. I I managed to get through it. I had no other choice really. Yeah. And then uh, by that point, my vision was really bad in this. In this, uh, I I still had it, but it was it was it was quite bad. Yeah. It had deteriorated to. I want to say about 2100 or so, roughly. So, so wow. quite, quite blurry. The whole thing was blurry. Yeah. And then things, things got a little strange. I started getting really bad headaches. And I knew I was going to get more pain. Yeah. Because it's like a burn. The, the worst of it is about an hour or sorry, an hour. It's about... I think it's supposed to be about a week or a week and a half yeah. after your last dose where that burn continues to, to get more painful. Then it peaks yeah. and then it drops off. Okay. Well, the burn dropped off, but the headaches didn't. The headaches got worse. Yeah. So I was put on some medication for it. And then I decided to go visit my family in Toronto. And I started getting these little minute symptoms, stuff that I never would have noticed, but because I was so hyper aware of my own body at that point because of of uh undergoing the the cancer treatments and I, yeah. I was very much alive to every little thing happening with with myself i started feeling little tingling feelings um the vision though bad got a little bit worse just really i just felt off yeah and i called my uh my cancer doctor and i asked him you know what should i do here he said well it's better to be safe than sorry uh, go to the hospital, get checked out. So I go to the hospital and I, uh, I see the, um, just the, the, the general practitioner in the ER and being a cop, I had seen the person he had just dealt with was, was very clearly an opiate addict. He was trying to, to score essentially painkillers from yeah. his doctor. Uh, his story wasn't making any sense. He was kind of putting on a bit of a show in the yeah. hospital and then I come up next and then I'm also in, in, lot of pain. In, in, in some pain and I've got some concerns, but I didn't want him to, to discount what I was 
therefore, after having just previously dealt with him, people are human. People are going to, you know, they might carry that bias perhaps. So this is where it's very important as a lesson to anyone to advocate for your own health care. I was very adamant about the condition that I potentially could have had and what could have been going wrong at that point. Because the problem with the the radiation was there was a a chance that it was going to work, but there was also the chance that it wouldn't work. So if, if the... If it did work, that whole, you know, dead in 10 years thing was out the window. Okay. But if it did work, if it was successful, uh, then, yeah, then that was gone. But if it, if it didn't work, then, um, then of course, the tumor would still be there yeah. and potentially growing. And so I needed, to, I needed to get that examined. So he examines me. He doesn't see anything wrong that he can tell. It's like constant checkpoints. But yeah, you still needed to make sure that it's doing its thing. It, exactly, and I, I, I was, I was very adamant that I didn't want any pain medication. I wasn't there for that. I just needed to know that I was okay. Mm-hmm. And so he conceded to that and said, "All right, well, you know, come in tomorrow. I'll set you up with the, um, uh, the neurosurgeon resident, and she'll examine you." Mm-hmm. Because my surgery, I should have mentioned this before, was both. It, it, it was kind of a, a little bit of involvement from both the ophthalmologist and the neurosurgeon because mm-hmm. of the implications of it going to the brain and all that. Yeah. And so um, the, uh, I believe it was the, the neuro resident that came in. In any event, I see the resident the following day mm-hmm. and she does tests that she's trained to do that the other doctor wasn't. Yeah. And essentially tells me, you know, this thing's grown exponentially. It's actually pushing your eye out. That's why you're in so much pain, all the pressure in there. And the back four quadrants of your eye are all hemorrhaging. They're all bleeding. So they book me into the hospital immediately. And they're trying to figure out what they're going to do with me. Who's going to operate. And... You didn't even expect that. You had no. no idea you were going in there to get operated on again in Toronto. Exactly. And so I was there going through the decision-making process of who, of who is going to operate or what combination of doctors is going to operate. They, um, they said, uh, you know, by the way, we're going to have the neurosurgeon come in and she's going to talk to you and she's going to give her medical opinion on, uh, on this matter as a whole. And I thought, okay, perfect. And the timing of this could not have been better. So my parents were in the room. Yeah, my best friend had come to see me as well, and my parents had gone down to grab coffees, which was perfect. So my best friend was there. My parents were out of the room. The neurosurgeon comes in, and she's very and I don't fault her for this. Uh, some friends of mine that I told this story to were, were a little upset about it, but I, I don't fault her for this because she probably deals with things like this on an hourly basis every yeah. day. Yeah. So she comes in very matter of fact little to no emotion this is who i am these are my credentials i've been asked to come here to give you an opinion on this my opinion is that uh you're not going to die in the next few days you'll survive the surgery but you need to get your affairs in order uh because this is going to be uh palliative this is a terminal illness that you have and we can't fix you we can operate on you to mitigate the symptoms and to take away some of the pain but can't fix you wow and that hit me and, of course, caused me to ask the question of, well, how long do I have? To which she responded, reluctantly so, uh, anywhere from 
two months to two years. Wow. So. And this was how long ago, Michael? I was 20, I'm 32 now. I yeah. was 27, I think, at the time. Wow, yeah, five years ago. Somewhere around there, yeah, so about five years ago. Um, yeah, that, that completely destroyed me. Every other thing that I had gone through up to that point was negligible compared to, to how that was. It's earth shattering because everything that you were doing was to get better long term. And here you have someone coming in as straight up as they are saying, we're going to do something for you short term, but that's it. It stops there. Exactly. And there's, there's no experimental surgery or procedure or drug. There is nothing for this. It, it's, it, it's, it, sorry, it is what it is. There's nothing we can do for you. Yeah. And, and she was there for maybe five minutes and noticed that I was getting pretty upset and said, you know, the other doctors will be along for their part and uh, I, I got to go to the next patient. So it seems callous, but I get it because again, she's probably doing this on an hourly yeah. basis with one patient after the is next. Is that something, Michael, and I hope you don't mind me interjecting because I know you, you, you're definitely going to be speaking on a lot of these things. Mm -hmm. is, is this something it took you time to understand and respect why she did that? Or at that moment in time, was it kind of like, okay, I get why she's telling me like as, as a cancer survivor, absolutely. Are you, are you um, glad it was just so blunt and honest? As opposed to having it, a little hope. Yes, because it, it prepared me for, for what I, I thought was coming. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't like dancing around facts. I like to be direct, yeah. even when the direct news is, isn't very good. But it, uh, I, I, even then, I wasn't mad at her. I, I wasn't mad at her. Yeah. I, uh, I understood. I was more focused. I was so focused on my own stuff. I don't think I even had the thought process to be mad at her yeah because that emotion of like you're gonna die soon you're gonna be taken away from your family your siblings your friends you're gonna be out of this world you're never gonna see them again they're not gonna see you again such a young age too yeah i i wasn't married i didn't have kids i was just starting to you know be quite successful in my career at that time uh all these things just came crashing down and nothing it, it, it's it's like everything was just washed away almost and and the the raw emotion of it it's very difficult to describe, um, but it was just this overwhelming surge within me that was just coming up, and, and it's like I, it was everything I could do to contain it. I was still bawling my eyes out. I was, I was, I was hyperventilating. I, I was just, I was an absolute mess, yeah. and I was like that for a number of minutes, and then the realization hit me that my parents are coming back soon. They just went for coffee. They can't, they can't be that long before they get here. So I looked at my friend. I'm like, not a word to them. Not a word. I, 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 they can't take this news right now. The last thing I want is for them to have a heart attack in the hospital. Because, yeah. And it was actually a, a long time before I told them uh, wow. what was told to me in that, in that hospital. Yeah. And to manage that at the time, what I did was I would... So I wiped away all my tears, cleared up my face, and I would... Literally, every hour and a half or so, I'd go to the washroom. Mm -hmm. I'd bite my hand, and I'd cry my face off, wipe the tears, mm -hmm. and clean up and everything, and then come out. And I would tell my parents, yeah, I was, you know, I was sick. I wasn't feeling well. Sorry. Wow. But I couldn't keep that emotion down. I literally, every hour, hour and a half, two hours, would have to go in and just let it out i just wanted to scream but i couldn't definitely and so that was that's tough going back at it now 
are you glad you still gave a lot of time before you told your parents? Yes. Or, yeah. Yes, because this would have been way too hard for them at that time. It would have been very difficult. Yeah. For them, um, very difficult. Yeah. So then, ultimately, what happened is I ended up coming back to Alberta for a number of reasons to have uh, my surgery here. Uh, to make a long story short, I had a I had the dream team of doctors here Great. operating on me. It was just the way it worked out, it was perfect. I had one of the best neurosurgeons I could have asked for, yeah. the best ophthalmologist in in Western Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, at one point, he was actually injured and unable to operate on patients, and they had to fly some of his patients to Toronto. Mm-hmm. That was the nearest place that could deal with some of the people he was dealing with. Wow. So dream team of doctors, they operate, and they did what's called a craniotomy. So uh, it was a fairly lengthy procedure. It was about seven hours long. They did a very good job of covering it up, but if you look closely, you can see where the scar starts here, okay. and it goes all the way along. Mm-hmm. And essentially, they... they cut, peeled my face down, took part of my skull out. They literally made an incision within the skull about really? ab- about that big, let's say, roughly. Yeah. You can actually still feel the metal yeah. pins that are there. They took that out, lifted the brain, and then went in and operated. So they took the entire optic nerve out. From the top, from the face, like the face of your... So my, this was, yeah, this front was... Front facing. Yeah, yeah, so this was down. Wow. This was out, lifted, operated. The optic nerve, the tumor, some of the surrounding tissue as a as a measure of caution, if you will, kind of like a safety net. Yeah. And very fortunately for me, the uh, remember how I'd said the uh, optic nerves join up in the chiasm? Yes. Well the tumor had made it just to the just to the inside of the chiasm. So there was the risk and they warned me before the surgery, they said there's a risk that you might wake up completely blind. Wow. So you're gonna wake up without vision in your right eye. That's unavoidable. If, if we don't do that, you're going to not only die, but it'll be a lot more painful. Wow. Um, but you might be completely blind. On both eyes. On both eyes. Because if the tumor had latched onto the right part within that chiasm where the nerve fibers from the other eye were in, it, potentially it could take that vision out as well. That must have been, you tell me, as <laughs> earth-shattering Terrifying. as the previous news. Because... It, Hey, you're not just gonna die. You're gonna die, and and you're gonna you're gonna go out blind. Yeah. I I I, I was just at a at an all time low. Yeah. You're like, what could have been worse than hearing that, right? Yeah. I. Damn. I, it was terrifying, but but I had no choice. Yeah. Um, at least not in my mind. Yeah. And so, I go through the surgery. I wake up. I was able to see, which was a relief. Yeah. Wow. And that's when I got the first little bit of good news. They said. We got the whole thing out. The whole tumor's out. We're sending it away for analysis, but we're not entirely sure that it's high grade anymore. Because on the MRI scans and everything leading up to that surgery, the rate of progression was consistent with high grade. It was just growing way too fast to be anything but high grade. Yeah. Which is essentially why it was deemed to be a death sentence. And I, and I did some of the research myself. I looked at some of the peer-reviewed medical journals, and, yeah. and two years is a gracious period. Most people were dead before a year. Wow. Um, fatality rates were 100% in some of the studies. Damn. And in adults, it was almost always high-grade. Um, so anyway, um, I, uh, I get the news that it appears to be low-grade. However, some of the some of the composition of the tumor could be high grade, but they wouldn't 
they, they, don't, they, they wouldn't know that unless they sent it off and it gets analyzed and it can take several weeks for the pathology lab to do their thing. Mm -hmm. So unbeknownst to me, this tumor that appears to be low grade on the outside could have components, even a 1% component within, within it that could be high grade. Mm -hmm. And there's no in between with this type of cancer. Mm -hmm. It's, if, if it's low grade, it's survivable. If it's high grade, you're done. There, yeah, there's no one or the other. Yeah, there's no in between. So for, for three weeks, just about, I'm, I'm waiting every day. And I, I was a mess. Physically, I was a mess because it took me about... Were you waiting to hear that news? Yes, because I was in the hospital for about a week. It was about three days before I could walk again because yeah. I couldn't work out for months prior to that. I was on a whole bunch of different drugs that essentially caused muscle atrophy. It literally ate my muscle. The physical trauma of the surgery itself, yeah. like it was a full body reset. Yeah, physically, I, mentally, after totally. performed brain surgery pretty much. Totally, totally. They lifted up my brain. It, wow. Your, your brain's not supposed to have that happen to Yeah, it. ever. No, and, and, and so uh, even, I, I still remember a, a week after the surgery, I had gotten out of the hospital, recovered sufficiently to be uh, staying um, outside of there. I'd been staying at a, at a place nearby, and um, I squatted down to grab some milk out of the fridge, and I just about buckled over. And I wanted to exercise to try to get myself better, so I would walk. I'd go on a treadmill and walk at a mild pace, yeah. we'll call it. Just to get some movement going. Right? Exactly. helps with recovery as well. If, you, if anyone ever undergoes surgery, one of the best things they can do, in, in most cases, I should say, yep. perhaps not all, uh, but one of the best things that you can do is, is move to get circulation going. It helps Absolutely. with recovery. It helps with even just your own mental health. That's great. But it was exhausting. I, I'd, I'd walk for five or six minutes, and I'd have to sleep for an hour. I'd wow. go grab five-pound dumbbells and do yeah. exercises for it five. It feel like a three-hour like, boot camp workout, right? Five, ten minutes, I had to sleep because I was so tired. But eventually, I got better and better, and <clears throat> but I was still waiting on the news. And I, I still very vividly remember this. I'm in the shower, it's eight something in the morning, I'm half covered in soap and I hear my phone go off and I, like, who's calling me? I look, oh, that's my doctor. Shut off the shower, I'm like, it's weird, why is he calling me? Yeah. Grab my phone, I answer it, hello? Hey, Michael, yeah, it's me, yeah, it's so-and-so. I just wanted to let you know, we got the results back, the entire thing's low grade, you're going to be fine. You're good to go. And then after oh, that, he, he talked to me for, I think, another five, ten minutes. And I don't recall a single word he said. Yeah. All I remember is you're going to be fine. I'm going to be alive. It's low grade. Exactly. And I, I was shaking. I was physically shaking. Wow. And um, I, I was a mess. But What a relief. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That, that was one of the biggest reliefs, I've, or the biggest relief I've ever had in my yeah. life. You weren't even expecting the call on that day. The entire time, every single day, you have no idea what the outcome is going to be. I think that's the hardest part. I think that's tougher than Not realizing knowing. that you are going to eventually die. Very much so, because it's the uh, it's the fear of the unknown. Especially when you haven't even told loved ones yet. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Very much so. And uh, he, uh, actually one other thing I do remember he said is he said, I didn't want you, I didn't want to call you to have have you come in and just be yeah, on edge the whole time? I wanted yeah. you to know right away. That's good. And I was, I was very appreciative and very yeah. happy that he did that. Do you think that. he would have done the same thing had it been the other news? That's a good question. Yeah. I want, I'm just curious. 
I wonder what that would look like. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe he might have. Only yeah. because. I don't know, actually. I, you it's know what? That's an one. interesting question. It's a very tough one, actually. Do you, do you have a relationship with him right now? Unfortunately, no. He's retired. Um, yeah. Fair. I, I wish he wasn't because I'd like yeah. to ask him that I question. Mean, just saying, that'd be a question for him some yeah. other time, right? I should track him down. I'd be able to find yeah, him. Just I, to hear. Because I'm sure, obviously, he's had many cases. Just to know how he's handled it. I'm absolutely. sure there's no one right way, but just depending on what a doctor's preference is in that case. Because very. Yeah. Just to shine this in that light, it just blows my mind to hear how they deal with that on a day-to-day basis. I, I don't know how they do it. No. I, I, I really don't. I, uh, I, I've certainly seen my, my fair share of things in policing, but I, I don't think it comes close to some of the stuff they deal with. Yeah. My own personal opinion. That's not to take away from things that other people go through and whatnot. But yeah, um, but yeah so that was, the, uh, that was a huge turning point in my life, obviously, with, with, with how that happened. Um, for many reasons, though, for good and bad. So yeah. good in that I'm not going to die anymore. Yeah. But there were two life-altering changes that occurred there. So one, I lost all vision in my right eye, which completely, which at the t- completely permanently, which at the time um, was my dominant eye. So I had to retrain myself to do everything with my left eye, even just walking around, not bumping into stuff, wow. depth perception. Yeah. The cup's there. I'm grabbing it. I'm not doing one of these and knocking it over oh, and things like wow. that. So is that what you mean by dominant eye? Where like we as humans have one specific eye that we tend to? Correct. So and does that even kind of come to like, just out of curiosity, for yeah. me, I always typically look at one eye more than the other. Yes. Right when I'm talking to somebody. So when you say dominant, was it, what, did you feel like that other eye did that for you in a lot of ways or... This is very unknown territory. Yeah, no, I'll, sure. I'll I'll try and explain it um, yeah. in a in a different context. Mm-hmm. So, because yeah, this is something that most people never would really deal with. Yeah. So, with respect to to your dominant eye, uh, the easiest example I could think of is is training officers to shoot. Your yeah. dominant eye, you're going to figure out pretty quick if you shoot like this or like that. Yeah. So that's kind of one of the. That's a good point. Exactly. So that's one you're going to want to look with. Correct. Right. So whichever, and some people are cross-eyed dominant, so there are right-handed people that have a dominant left eye. But I'm right-handed and was right-eye dominant. So um, I had to adjust to that, to the lack of field of vision, scanning more, adapting, depth perception. Wow. Which, interestingly enough, I didn't know this, is up to here. Gauging distances past arm's length mm-hmm. is a monocular task. You do it with one eye. You don't need both. Wow. So I didn't have to redo anything for driving because I could still gauge distances. Yeah, when I got, right. Even when I got behind the wheel, again, uh, uh, <clears throat> it just, everything was fine. Everything yeah. was normal. Oh, I just had it to, didn't feel too big of a difference. No, I was a little... Uh, my confidence was really shaken up at first, so I was going really slow. Yeah. I, I was driving under the speed limit. Yeah. <laughs> I was that guy. Yeah. But... Uh, I, uh, I I quickly adapted to it and realized, you know, gauging distances. This is this is fine. This is, there's nothing to it. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, the only real difference is when I shoulder check, I do an extra. Yeah, just extra turn. turn around. Exactly. Absolutely. That's it. And you can actually relearn depth perception from using different visual cues that remain with the dominant eye. So with both eyes, you have X amount of visual cues. I can't remember what it is, like thirty something or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right? And so you retain a certain number of them when you, with the good remaining eye, and you can retrain yourself to do stuff within arm's length. Wow. 
hence jujitsu. Yeah, that was exactly. one of the reasons I started jujitsu, and it was go. all I'd never done jujitsu at all, and it helped with that tremendously. So everything you do in jujitsu is arm's length, and as well, uh, at least when you start, right? Because when you start, you're you don't know what you're doing. You're yeah. an absolute disaster. White belt is the toughest belt. I always say that <laughs> it's a it's a tough belt, man. I mean, I've only ever been a white or a blue belt. I've only got you know one reference point really, yeah. but it's a. It's a tough, tough belt, um, which explains the high rate of attrition on it and Definitely. why so many people don't stick around with it. Yeah. And you see the higher belts, and I've had people bring this argument up with me. Well, you know, you don't really need your eyes. Lots of guys close their eyes and stuff like yeah. that. And, and I get that, but not as a white belt. You're not doing that as a yeah, white belt for the most part. you still need that awareness. You, yes, you're, you're developing that, that situational awareness, which was another thing that it helped me develop wow. and, and adapt to my new circumstances. Just that spatial awareness, if you will. Yep. Where you're just much more alert of everything going around you, your For balance, sure. your your perceptions, everything. Yep. It was very uh, hugely, hugely beneficial. Yep. So I just want to confirm before we actually head into that direction. Sure. So that call that you received mm -hmm. from the doctor was like the call. Like that was the call that you received and knowing that you were going to be alive and everything's gonna be okay. But like was there any further obstacles that you hit? In, in this period of time in your life? No, that, that, would, be, that would have been the defining moment, so to speak. Um, there, were, there were many obstacles after that, but nothing that could like the transition of getting Yeah, exactly. Because after that, really my biggest issue was the fear of, well, what if it comes back? Yeah. What, if, what if I lose vision in my good eye? What if... Definitely. You know, what if I get skin cancer now because I had radiation? I'm on the yeah. sun too long, and, and all these all these other things. Um, you know, the the anxiety, the yeah. psychological Everything trauma, the whole thing. Oh, totally. Yeah, all the sort of baggage that comes with it. Yeah, that would be expected to go with something that traumatic. For sure. But nothing that compared to that. Yeah. And I even that phone call. I uh, I I thought he was calling to to tell me when to come in. That was kind of the first thing that hit my mind because yeah. I'm like, well, he's calling me. He's just going to tell me when to come in. Okay, he'll Nothing. give me the date. And then he just went right into it, and it caught me so off guard yeah. that I just... Shocked. I, I was completely shocked. Yeah, wow. And, and processing it. and yeah. Just to know that, wow, this is real. Yeah. Right? That's that like I, a pinch me, I'm dreaming moment. That I get another... Uh, another chance at life, essentially. Because yeah. I, I had, at one point come to the uh, I come to the belief that I'm 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 gonna die I think I'm gonna die um, and, and as strange as it is I was almost okay with that but the hardest part was leaving everyone behind yeah I hate causing pain I, I hate it absolutely um, and knowing the pain that my 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 family my friends um, we're gonna go through was the worst. Was yeah. worse than dying. It Realizing was worse than in a dying. Way that you're leaving them a burden. Like it almost felt like that. Yeah. yeah. Because I knew how much pain they were gonna be in. Wow. And that was that was worse than dying. Yeah. That was that actually was, that worse, was than worse than dying. Than, wow. So to you, that was worse than feeling like there's so much more to life that you didn't live. So that was that wasn't necessarily your primary concern. No, and I and I've heard people say that and. Yeah. It's not to take away from that either, because one of the things that did cross my mind was there's so much more I want to do. Absolutely. It wasn't so much regret over things I had done. It was, oh, hold on, I got so much more I want to finish and accomplish and, yeah. and achieve, and, and I haven't had the chance to do that. I need more time to do those things. Yeah. And 
um, that was present, but it was it was overridden by wow. by that That's for me at least. Yeah, no, absolutely. It included all the people that you loved, right? That's huge. Do, yeah. do you find that there were certain things? Maybe this is a transition to jujitsu or other things you'd like to Certainly. bring into light. Certainly, that you started realizing that you want to now involve yourself in in life. We were like, okay, wow, I have my second chance. Mm-hmm. And now you're almost, you're seizing the day. Yeah. Like every day you're waking up, you're like, wow, this would have been another day or a year I would not have had. And, and what were some of those things that you really did start digging deeper into to, to figure yourself out and do the things you love doing? So those were, that's an interesting, that's an interesting question. Yeah. Um, there were a number of things. One of, one of the biggest things uh, I'm just trying to think of where to start with this. No, absolutely. Because there were a number of things. I mean, there were... For me, I mean, while you're thinking in my head, like I think of maybe what you might have done more of or what you might have done less of. Mm -hmm. What did you add? What did you you delete? Like certain things like that. You're like, wow. One thing I've always wanted to do, uh, I, you know, get married, have kids. I've always wanted a family. Nice. Um, And and fortunately, I have that now. I've got a beautiful wife, beautiful little baby girl. I love it. And uh, thank you. Yeah. And I, I I even to this day think like, you know, what if that disease overtook me and I never got to experience this, this new chapter in your life? Yeah. Like, like having that and and I'll get into the work stuff and everything else that I did after, but that in and of itself supersedes all other accomplishments in my life by far. They don't compare. They don't compare. There's no comparison. Yeah. I hear that a lot when those it's true and you can't explain it you You, you can't explain it you have to experience it there's there's no substitute you can attempt to describe it but there's just no correct expression of words or or sentiment that can properly captivate that true feeling that's awesome yeah so to speak like it's probably the how I would explain it absolutely but uh, at the time, I, d- I didn't have that, and I wanted to achieve. I almost got greedy. I, I wanted to achieve everything. I yeah. wanted to further my career, my education, my wow. physical fitness, my everything. I, yeah. Everything. Optimize every single yeah. part of your life. That's just it, right? And I uh, unknowingly at the time had the chance to do that in a sense. So, because what had happened was, I, I get better, I get back to work. And they say, hey, you know, you're, you're blind in one eye. We hate to do this to you. We know how much you love this job. We know how much you love going out, being on the street, doing stuff. You can't do that anymore. You can't be operational. You, and you're never going to be operational. And they really held off for a while on telling me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew that my medical profile had relegated me to administrative duties. And I was always talking about how I, was, I knew I was still able to do the job. Yeah. And I you think that's... You feel like you had to prove yourself again. Yeah. And that's, but I think that's why they had such apprehension telling me that... Hey, like here's a guy that wants to do this, but we have to tell him he can't. And, and how do you reconcile that? So yeah. eventually they did, and I obsessively pursued the goal of becoming operational again. And how that went about was I, I, I took a number of different avenues, and there's a lot of lessons in this. I learned new meaning to the words patience. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to the word patience. Absolutely, um, I can imagine. Because this was a four, just about a four-year endeavor to yeah. get operational. So the first... And by operational, you need to get back to where you believe Frontline policing. Stand. Yeah, frontline policing. Career-wise. Yeah, no, uh, no restrictions, you know, not relegated to 
administrative duties, not Absolutely. chained to a desk. Because that's essentially what I was told wow. was going to happen. We're going to put you in criminal intelligence, and you're not going to be you're going to be doing lots of stuff, but you're not going to be doing arrests. You're not going to be going in, kicking doors, taking calls, arresting people, none of that stuff. Yeah. And so I thought, okay, well, the first way to, to prove that I can do this is to just meet the standards. That's what I'll do. I'll go meet the standards. So I dug up every physical standard they have, push-ups, pull-ups, bench press, running. I, and I trained obsessively, wow. obsessively. I was, I was doing like a, a sub nine minute a uh, mile and a half, they call it the Cooper's Mile. Mm -hmm. So 2.4K in under nine minutes. I was doing push-ups for days. I was doing all these different things, the physical obstacle course we have to, to run. Wow. They're not even mandatory standards, yeah. but I, I pursued every single one of them to make the argument of, hey, look, I'm not, I'm not this piece of glass that's yeah. going to break. If you put me out there, I can handle I myself. And match the credentials and then some. Exactly. Right? Uh, matching things that even your own guys don't have. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of your guys don't even have. And then... I coupled that with uh, a lot of the training courses that we have. We've actually got some pretty decent training um, in that we can do, it's called uh, SBT, scenario-based training, and mm. that's where you use, you've got actors, you use simunition to simulate rounds, the, wow. the gun feels real and everything. It, it's, you wear protective masks and stuff. Huge, and there's yeah. decision-making process scanning your environment yeah. I, and i took every course i could even courses i'd already taken yeah simulate the real life scenario as best as you can this is how you train your guys put me in that scenario and you're going to see really quickly if i have problems with my vision with my depth perception with manipulating my gun with getting on the handcuffs if i'm missing if i'm you know doing whatever you're going to yeah. see if there's a deficit you're going to see if there's an issue and that's how you can articulate and risk it out exactly so i took every course you can imagine the taser course just the standard research scenarios the um the active shooter course that we take, uh, yeah, immediate wow. action. Um, and are these already, just to kind of keep that balance of what's criteria and what's yes. not, were these already standards you had to meet or was this the extra? Uh, a little bit of both. Some were standards you had to meet and yeah. some were extra additional training. Okay. Passed every course, no issues. Okay. And I and I brought up my issue. I, uh, I got a little impatient and I may have emailed the commissioner at the time directly and said, and I was tactful about it, I said, look, this is who I am. This is what I'm trying to do. This is everything I've achieved towards that goal. Can you help me out here? I just, I just want to go back. I just want to be a cop again. Totally. And to his credit, um, one of his uh, higher-ranking guys responded. Like you have to understand how busy this guy is. Like I, I uh, that was perhaps done out of a little bit of impatience. But to yeah. his credit, a while later, he uh, had someone get back to me wow. and said, "We appreciate what you're trying to do. We're going to put you in direct contact with the." Um, RCMP's national medical advisor, and you nice. can work with her and see what you can do. It's huge. So here's another lesson: don't burn bridges. I love that. Do yeah, not I'll burn bridges, uh, because with her, we had we had communicated back and forth a number of times. I was always very polite with her, yeah. and uh, and as you should be with anyone, really. Yeah. And uh, ultimately, she said no, and I was wow. really not happy with that response, yeah, exactly. but nonetheless. You know, stay polite, stay tactful, don't burn that bridge. Good. You know what? Thank you for your time. I appreciate you looking into this. And she said no to you getting back up on the front line. Correct, based yes. Based off of everything you've done. Yeah, so she, she looked at it and said, okay, I get it. But, you know, there's ramifications with this. There's, there's you know, all sorts of other issues with and it. She's the ultimate decision maker. She's, yes, she's, she's one of the people at the top yeah. in Ottawa that, that makes that decision. And uh, she essentially had said, there's, there's nothing that allows us to, to do this. So I held my tongue and I, I formulated a new sort of plan of attack, if you will. 
and a whole bunch of things happened all at once. Part of it was the realization that this was going to be much more than just doing a whole bunch of physical and tactical things. This was going to be a very academically based pursuit to convince them to allow me to get back operational because there are all sorts of organizational risk factors to consider, liability, public perception. Like you can't just throw a cop on the street with one eye and say, hey, no, it's fine. Like there's all sorts of implications totally. with that, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so that realization, as that dawned on me, and I started to formulate a, a bit of a different strategy, uh, one of the things that I was doing and had been doing throughout was pursuing a university degree. Yeah. So I was pursuing a degree in criminal justice, and actually I still am. I'm in my fourth year now. Nice. And I started taking electives that, would ha- that were essentially beneficial to learning how to write better, yeah. how to articulate myself better, so critical reasoning, you know, philosophy, things that courses that would help you, like I said, write better, explain yourself better, articulate better, uh, understanding uh, methodology behind research, you know, things like that, things that were going to be useful. For sure. Again, it seems like just going back to the point of optimization, you're doing courses that are not only going to help you justify why you should be able to be back on the front line, but they're also just going to help you in everyday life in general. Right? Absolutely. Oh, they do. They, it, even career-wise, I mean, just your, you know, your ability to write reports, to rationalize certain things, to look at different perspectives and be more, more open-minded about things. Yeah. And, and so, uh, so the university stuff helped tremendously, especially because I had already, I already had my career. I, I sort of did it backwards. I got my career, and yeah. then I pursued the education. Exactly. And it's so important, even to this day, I'm still pursuing it. And I, it's so important to continue learning throughout your career. Yeah. Your career shouldn't just be focused on work. You, you need to learn to continue to, uh, to evolve, to Absolutely. grow. Um, it, it's a never-ending journey. It's a great it's, point. It, it's not finite. There's no, there's no plateau yeah. of learning. There's none. And you almost feel more inclined to be at your job or be a part of your career when you are learning every day. Yes. Right. We're living in a society now where I feel like in an environment where people want to stay engaged. Yes. They want to go into work and be like, okay, well, what did I learn? Right. It, it wasn't just feeling of like doing the same mundane tasks and feeling exactly. like you're on uh, autopilot. Correct. You know, when in reality, like, wow, okay, I learned something new. I'm going to apply it. Into exactly. Well, and that's where you get, that's where you get people who I, I would argue become stagnant. Yeah. They become, uh, almost defeated in their jobs. They don't enjoy what they're doing anymore. There's no change. No. Um, you, you need that. Of course. So and That's why I'm telling you right now, sorry to cut you off. No, not at all. But any, let's say, regular human, after getting rejected from the higher up, from the, from the, from the woman or man who's making those decisions, would have been like, okay, I tried, off I go somewhere else. But you, 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 you after that went, okay, well, what else can I do? It's amazing. I, I just, I couldn't concede that point because I knew, I knew it, in my in my heart of hearts that she was wrong I, I knew it however well-intentioned she was there was no malice there was no hostility they weren't picking on me they yeah. just they just didn't get it they didn't know and I had to show them so I do the university stuff I'm then presented with an opportunity to go to tactical training section and headquarters in Edmonton and it was a, what's called a duty to accommodate. So I'm not going to get too much into this because there's, there's quite a bit to this. But essentially, there's legislation in place yep. where an employer is legally bound to accommodate someone if they have a disability. Okay. And so 
let's say you work for an employer, this is your standard job, you get injured, you get sick, whatever, this happens. They can't just fire you. They need to you know, be able to essentially find work for you to do. Now, of course, okay. there's, there's um, you know, caveats to that. Like if, if, you're, if you're so far removed from what you do that you're incapable of doing anything and, and, and whatnot. But essentially, it, it allows, it's a layer of protection for employees Great. who encounter something to, to maintain employment. So my job wasn't in question, which was a good thing. Um, but, uh, you know, I can imagine situations where other people are perhaps not so fortunate. So it's a very yeah. important thing to know that that legislation exists where employers are bound to good. try to yeah, find. Yeah, putting that out there. Yeah. So, but in any event, uh, yeah, so they open a spot in tactical training and say, this is a duty to accommodate. We'll put you there. You'll be an extra body. To which I, I respond, yeah, I'd, you know, I'd love to go there. That'd be awesome. But I, I'm not an instructor in anything. I used to teach swimming as a lifeguard. I used to train lifeguards as a kid when I was, you know, 18, 19. But I, I don't have any of the credentials to, to do that job. That's okay. We'll, we'll take care of that. Yeah. Okay. So I go in the unit and I show up and I, you know, this is who I am. I'm sorry that I don't have any yeah. of the instructor level courses. I'll, I'll do whatever you guys need. As a lifeguard. Or, or no, like uh, just like I had. Sorry, I had just explained that um, as a, as an instructor in terms of instructor experience. Yeah. All I had was lifeguarding. I, oh, I wasn't okay, a okay. police instructor. Yeah. I, I wasn't a firearms instructor. None of that. Yeah. And they afforded me the opportunity to take those courses. So wow. I took uh, my basic firearms instructor course, yeah. which teaches me to teach instruct uh, inst- instruct people how to shoot pistol, shotgun, rifle. Wow. So pistol, I still shoot right-handed. Yeah. Well, shotgun and rifle with the, the scope way. that doesn't ah. go so well. So I had to adapt to shoot left-handed. Yeah. Same with the carbine. Uh, and then I became a tactics instructor, carbine instructor, taser instructor. I took all wow. these things, then became an instructor trainer and taught on national level courses and Huge. used that to further my arguments saying, hey, here's your standard. I'm, yeah. I'm way above where I need to be. I'm teaching these guys who I'm, are going out there to be in front of the yeah. line. And then I'm teaching your guys who are teaching them to go out. I, you know, what, else, what more do you want here? Exactly. Like, yeah. <laughs> That's the above and beyond. Exactly. So I, uh, I, I was afforded some very good opportunities there, Amazing. and uh, phenomenal, uh, phenomenal training. Really good, good instructors. A lot of stress. They're challenging courses yeah. to begin with. The one I think, I guess, especially when you're taking the, uh, it, it's called PEPSIC, but it's essentially a uh, tactics instructor course. Yeah. There's so much going on. There's so much you have to be alive to. The scenarios that you're doing and the situations you're being put in to show how you would respond to certain behaviors, certain threat cues, whatever. Wow. And articulate it after the fact. There's um, a lot of it simulated role play. Yeah, it's you all. Know, especially as a leader, like you'd have yeah. to get, you know, oh, yeah. you're, Mr. to this, you're going you're gonna to play this role yep. instead of this. You, you would walk into a room, you know, maybe this size, and they'd have furniture set up, they'd have different rooms, they'd have doors, they'd have chairs, they'd have furniture, everything. Wow. They'd have actors. This is the behavior you're, you're going to display. Interesting. If he does this, you do that. It's all decision-making based. Yeah. But of course, there's a very heavy visual component. You need to be situationally aware of what's going on. You've got a protective mask, so your vision's even further impeded. Wow. So you really have to have your head on a swivel and really be situationally aware of what's happening. Yeah. Which opened up a, an interesting argument for me to make in returning to be operational because I had essentially argued situational awareness. It's not just visual. There's a huge cognitive piece there. Totally. That, that saying of you're looking but you're not seeing. 
Uh, very real. I've seen people, they're all amped up, they scan, they miss the gun. Uh, or they they scan and they see something that is perhaps not a weapon and is misinterpreted to be or, or whatever. Wow, and that's yeah. where, you know, you can really start to to find the issues that people have in, in some of these training courses. Like what was it specifically you were focusing in on where it allowed you to miss what was kind of right there in front of you? It was yep. kind of like brings me back to my psychology courses mm -hmm. where it was like, okay, everyone see this video. Show the hands who saw the bear. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. And there's science behind that. There's peer-reviewed medical journals that have explored these issues and the stress response to the body and you know, at a certain certain beats per minute you have you know, you start to get sensory exclusion and that's why, you know, you talk to certain officers that have been in shootings while they didn't hear the gunshots. That's normal. Wow. That is a normal thing. I've talked yeah. to dozens of officers that have been involved in shootings. That is a normal thing. Wow. There's some people it's slow motion. There's some people that they get hit and they don't notice. Ten minutes that's later, insane. why is my hand wet? Oh, I'm bleeding. You know, it, sensory exclusion is, is unreal. There's there's lots of science that, yeah. that goes into why that happens Absolutely. and whatnot. And just but, like the the fact of the matter, too, is like the adrenaline pumping, the situation you're in, it's not something you see or do every day. No, exactly. Right? And so you need to acclimate to it. And the more training you do, the more you can acclimate. Absolutely. The fitter you are, the better prepared you are to deal with that stuff. Yeah, wow. And so... That's where I segued the fitness component into that as well, saying, hey, I'm maintaining a certain level of physical fitness. That's another thing that's going to offset these risks for you guys. And one of the biggest things that I did, uh, and, and this is where, again, the university uh, was extremely beneficial to me, mm -hmm. um, and the courses for that matter, because in the courses you really had to articulate yourself at a higher level in, in what you did, why you did it, what your perceptions were, what your emotions were, what you were feeling at the time why this behavior caused you to believe this, this, and that, and so on. Um, but I looked at the I looked at the policy itself, the medical policy, and I looked at the entirety of it. And it was very clear that they never really thought of what would happen if a cop loses vision in one eye. Can that cop still do the job? Can a police officer be blind in one eye and do the job? The way it was written, you could just tell that this had never crossed anyone's mind. Yeah. So then I look at all the medical references. I printed every single one of them out, every single one of them. And, you know, five pages here, 18 there, 25 there. Sp spread them all out on my desk at home. A lot of this was in my own time. I spent yeah. th literally thousands of hours. Wow. And I'd go through these documents and I'd highlight, okay, this is a uh, subjective generalization of factor X and Y. This here is this, this is that, this is a flawed research methodology, this is dated. Yeah, wow. And what I found as an overall sort of theme to that was there was no, there was nothing that spoke to policing with vision loss in one eye. It was it was just a lot of it was centered around driving and some other things, but nothing really specific to policing. There was only one of the of the however many eighteen documents or whatever it was that yeah. that actually had a a vague reference that was subjective at best, saying oh. well we think that it would be difficult to do the job or oh. whatever. So all those cases laid out in front of you, Michael, were of those individuals who went back into any workplace with one eye, and there was maybe only that one that was subjectively about police. Exactly, and it wasn't even, a lot of it wasn't even centered around work. It was it was just certain things like driving, like they'd have a test group, and you know, hey, our general finding is that if you're blind in one eye, you're gonna have a little bit of a tougher time driving. Um, but what I found as, a, as another sort of overall theme was there was a tremendous lack of data. And I, I scoured 
the internet like you wouldn't believe. I was yeah. obsessively researching and Absolutely. looking for, for proper peer-reviewed medical journals that yeah. would talk about policing. And, and there were none. There weren't any. Nothing they didn't exist. The so I thought, okay, that in itself is an argument to say that, hey, you guys don't have the appropriate data to make this decision. Yeah, what are you basing this off of? But I'm going to one-up you because I don't want to just go in anecdotally and say, well, I can do this, this, and this because I'm going to look... It's going to look self-serving to an extent. Mm -hmm. And with how invested I was in it, though I was I was being fair to myself in the process to, to properly portray that and then the you know public perception and things like that, it, it'd be very diff difficult, I, I would say, to, to, to truly show objectively by myself that I can do this. So... I, uh, I did my own research, and I found guys in the States that were doing the job with one eye. Mm -hmm. And I actually tracked these guys down. Wow. I'd call these people up. Hey, how's it going? This is so-and-so. This is what I'm trying to do. I heard you have... I, I heard you do the job. You're blind in one eye, basically. And, uh, and they're police officers. Yeah, and they're police officers. Wow. Um, one guy's even a SWAT officer. Post-vision loss. He got shot in his eye. Point blank. Blew off part of his face. Took uh, vision loss out of his eye. He survives, uh, gets back, and gets on the SWAT team, and wow. is to this day a SWAT officer. Sends me all of his arguments uh, and uh, the stuff that he's done, and I turned that more or less into a case study. Yeah, this is where you hit the jackpot. Yeah. This. Hey, here's a guy that did it, continues to do it, has been involved in many high-risk situations, has had no issue as a result of that. Wow. Here's another guy, hostage rescue team assistant team lead for uh, one of the FBI hostage rescue teams. Wow. Here's another guy. Here's another guy. Here's another. And, and, yeah. and I was showing them a wide context of situations that these guys had been involved in. Shootouts. Proper target identification. Pursuits. Um, uh, you know, shoot, no-shoot situations. Yeah. Different um, scenarios. Different scenarios. You know, uh, driving. Um, whether going lights and sirens, whether you're chasing a bad guy at high speeds, whatever. And... and but also, very importantly, to show a time frame for it. To say, look, this isn't one or two people that did a couple things, and luckily, you know, I didn't want them to attribute it to luck. I wanted it to be shown as essentially being a thing. Nope. This is a thing. Cops can do this job with one eye. People can do this job with one eye. Wow. You're not automatically incapable of doing it because of that. And I hate the word disability because it's it's yeah. it's frustrating because it's it doesn't disable me from doing that. I'm able to do my job. Yes. It's it's. I acknowledge that it's a legal term to to, to describe it, but yep. it's, it drove me nuts when they would refer it to it. Drove me nuts because in so many ways, to me, it seems like Michael, you did everything in your power to show and tell people you're not disabled. Exactly. If anything, you're far more capable. <laughs> like you guys of are doing more. You, than you the guys rest. are sending people to me that need work on their skills and training to be operational. Yeah. You're sending people to me to fix to be operational to go back out. What do you, and you know what? I feel like we're living <laughs> in a time now too. Where like people are trying to find different words and ways of saying it. Have you found a significant word that makes you more comfortable for other people in that light? Like, like you know how people are saying "unable bodied" or like, like they yeah, all person. that stuff. Like, is that worse? Is that do you think it's better? I, I, I almost just, I almost just stay away from it completely. Yeah. Like, hey, there's Mike. He's missing uh, vision in an eye. Yeah. Okay, cool. What the hell? He's that's still able to thing. function. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. I. Uh, that's more just what I stick to really than that anything. Yeah. Um, just for everybody else. Who yeah, no, like, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Right? And, and I take, I don't take offense to it when people say it. It's like, Oh, that's a disability. Yeah. 
Like I, I don't, I'm not like, oh, how dare you use that word around yeah. me type thing. Oh, I, exactly. I don't, I'm actually pretty relaxed about the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, clearly. But, uh, but yeah, so that, that was a huge driving force in, in sort of propelling my argument forward yes. to, to show this isn't just anecdotally some stuff that I've done. These are what many others have done in a, in a very comparable setting. Policing in the States, totally different dynamic. It, it, in many ways, far more high risk. Scary. Far more high risk. Yeah. Oh, it's, it, it's insane the stuff they have. I was actually, you know, it's so funny you say that. Uh, not, not funny, but just in general, right? Like, yeah. The other day I was watching one of these action-packed movies, right? Yeah. You see on Netflix all the time. Who, who, which cities are they in and, and who are the most <laughs> highly, uh, you know, spotlight acclaimed individuals, which is the police officers in LAPD or yeah. NYPD, right? Yeah. And it's because... You know, there's so much crime, there's so much that they're doing there, but to, to their credit, I mean, they're the ones who are police officers in, in, in high-risk situations, 20%. Very much so. Right? Like they're occupied with that shit every it's a, minute of their day. It's a very different context, uh, different training, uh, different budgets for training. You can imagine. Um, all sorts of different different issues, and, and yeah. it's, it's, it's very challenging. I, I give huge props to the guys out there that yeah. do it it's, it's very very difficult and that's the thing like not to discredit what officers are inclined to do here absolutely but it's just amazing to see how you were able to i believe and you could probably agree to this michael mm-hmm. you took your education and you went okay i'm learning all these research impacted evidence-based uh you know theories along with facts mm-hmm. and and i'm now going to be able to build my own case Mm-hmm. with something that's in my life that's going to allow me to do what I want to do. Exactly. And right? very, very much so. And um, it's an interesting topic I actually forgot to touch on. You go to the gym, you work out, you lift weights. The more you lift weights, the heavier you can lift. The, the, fa- the more you run, the faster you can run is a general concept and premise. Now apply that to learning. The more you learn, the more you are capable of learning. Yeah. When I finally put this this whole thing together it it was it was probably the one of the greatest things that i had ever built so to speak um that i had ever put together there were hundreds of pages of disclosure the amount of of work the thousands of hours to see this whole thing just come to fruition yeah everything that I, that i put into it um even just thinking you know outside the box and 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 attacking it from every different angle from these are all the things that I've done. This is how these measurable statistics conflict with some of the data you have that forms the parameters of your policy. Here's my ophthalmologist who I sought out for professional opinion yeah, that wow. actually says, you know what, I think he can do this. And uh, in fact, he can do this. Wow. And putting his, his name behind me. Yeah. And then me building him up saying, this is who this guy is. This isn't, this isn't, this isn't some small-time guy. Like yeah. th- This is the guy in ophthalmology. If anyone's going to know the answer, it's him. Absolutely. This guy, I could go on forever about this guy, but he, he got his MD in three years. Wow. He then went to Harvard oh. Medical and got his specialization in another three while simultaneously publishing papers. Like, this guy is a... Who a, better a, than him, right? Who better, right? What, what better guy? Yeah. Um, and that lesson, well, not burning bridges. Well, guess who, guess who all these papers ended up uh, going to again? Because uh, yeah, so I had gone through some internal processes, yeah. uh, essentially the grievance process. Because I was initially looking at the human, National Human Rights Tribunal, yeah. they and rightfully so won't entertain it until you've exhausted your internal avenues first, which makes sense. Um, yes, I would have loved to have jumped right there and gotten some independent arbitration, saying, "Hey, like obviously this is, you know, not how this should be handled." Blah blah blah. But 
uh, they would be inundated. They already right. are inundated with requests and, and applications and things like that. So you have to okay. exhaust your internal avenues first, which yeah. makes sense. Part of that was the grievance process. And throughout that process, I had worked with some of the higher-ups in headquarters who, uh, who actually read my stuff and said, you know, you, you should be back. This is, let's make this happen. You know, so they uh, became essentially a channel to uh, the National Medical Advisor again. Wow. And... It worked its way up right back again to the very top. She, brilliant woman, very well-intentioned, uh, gets some of my submissions, writes... And she's got her PhD, mind you. Yeah. She writes a, a paper, essentially, more or less. It's what it looked like. Saying, look, this is why we can't do this. To which... And I get it. Okay, she's saying no again. She's... I didn't sense any malice from her, any ill intention. She's wow. just... Because we, we had actually had a few phone conversations and, yeah. and without getting into too much detail about that. Because this is now, I believe, it's a special case. For her to see the second time over... Here's this guy again her, yeah. years later and he's done all these other things now. For and her to take the time to then write that paper. Exactly, right? yeah. And so she... You know, her and I talk and she says, look, like, I, I'm, I'm very familiar with with monocular vision. And I don't know, just the way she said it, I, I don't know if it was either her or someone in her life that she Personal. perhaps grew up with, but there's certainly a personal uh, element there. Absolutely. And, and of course, she's got to balance the interests of the organization, the RCMP, the organizational risk factors, yeah. the liability. A lot riding on her head about making this decision. Exactly. Like she's, she's very highly placed. So she has a lot of different things, competing interests, if you will, Absolutely. to look at. So again, to her credit, there was nothing uh, there was no ill intention on her part. And again, burning bridges, not a, not a good thing to do. So yeah. very, and I'll get into that a little bit more because there's another piece to that. So oh, yeah. I, I very tactfully write a counter paper to her paper and say, and that, this is where I introduce all my stuff and say, you know, I appreciate this, where you're coming from here, but here's some new information that you would not have access to because this doesn't exist. Like I, I went and found these guys. They're not in a repository somewhere that mm-hmm. says, "Oh, hey, here's you know these 15, 20 police officers that all do this stuff." I even found a Navy SEAL who uh, was a tier three guy. So he's a uh, in the Navy SEALs. You got high, the higher the, the or the lower the number, the the higher skilled the operator. So okay. tier one's the best. Wow. Tier three loses vision in one eye. Dominant hand gets all messed up. Fights to get operational, becomes operational, becomes a tier one operator best of the best goes on hundreds of missions like just wow phenomenal phenomenal guys and so that like, to me from the outside in like i understand she's dealing with a whole lot more policies protocols yes. restrictions regulations you name it when i hear that and this is from that street <laughs> perspective yeah. i'm thinking they're sending out a guy doing missions around the world you know fighting for his life fighting for thousands of lives going out to war literally and and, and, and dealing with something similar to what you dealt with and now she's looking at this for you, and, and she's still not so I'm, allowing it to happen. Well, yeah, then that's, where, that's where the turning point started, because yeah. that's when I started introducing all these things. And, and saying, you know, this is this, this is that. This actually refutes that. This refutes that. And, and I, I, I literally just attacked every single point. Because I had it all ready. Wow. This was months and years of work. Yeah. I knew every in and out. I knew every issue that they were going to... I I would literally bring my paper to people. 
have a glance. How would you attack this? And other times I'd sit with myself. I'd read it. Wow. It's like a chessboard, playing chess against yourself. You flip yeah. the board. I'd literally flip the chair, and I would look at it. How would I make myself... How would I refute this? How would I make myself not operational? How would I attack this? Okay, that's a problem. Mm, this hasn't been addressed. Wow. You're that, thinking so outside the box. And that, I think, I, I strongly suspect was enabled as a result of continuous learning. Continuous learning opened up my mind yeah. to seeing all those things. It's like jujitsu, right? You don't see the moves until you, the more you learn, the more you start see. It's just like that paper. Exactly. All those courses, all the training, all the, they're gonna talk about that. They're gonna yeah, bring this. It's clear to you to see how you could kind of break it in more depth, break it down to so many smaller chunks to get to the root of the source. And what she is going to be able to go, oh. My first, my first revision compared to my last, of which there were dozens in between, I was seeing things at the end that I, the old me, never in a million years would have picked out. Yeah, I like there were points where I, where people would read it and I could see them start laughing to themselves, like these guys don't have a chance, Michael. You're gonna get this. Wow. I think because initially it wasn't like that. Initially, everyone, even people that were close to me, you're not gonna get it. Poor you. Get a backup plan. Thinking blah, blah. That you're wasting your time. A lot of them did. Addressing it. A lot of them did. Even once I became an instructor, I had a lot of people who, hey man. You know, I think you can do it, but I don't think that you will because the organization will stop you. It's not that I don't think you're capable of doing it. And some people still thought that I wasn't capable of doing it. But it, the, the mindset went from he's never going to do it. There's no way you can do it with vision loss in one eye to yeah, can pro you can probably do it, but the force will never let you. Mm -hmm. and, and then uh, going back to the submissions, it goes to... The same person, the National Medical Advisor, yep. the RCMP's National Policy Center, and the Director General of Occupational Health and Safety. Wow. These are some big name people. Yeah. Um, very big name people, well above my pay grade, Huge. to which I'm making submissions and presenting my stuff, saying yeah. this is why you should change national policy and let me be the first officer in the history of it's the RCMP. It's it, it was groundbreaking. Yeah. And they reviewed it and Two months later, they're like, you're right. Here you go. Wow. I called them up. Holy shit. <laughs> really? I, I called them up and I said, you know, thank you. I called up the National Medical Advisor. I said, thank you. Thank you so much. You, you made the right decision. Um, I'm not going to let you down. You made the right decision. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out and I'm going to show you now that you made the right decision. Be honest. Was that moment just as exciting or more <laughs> or less than being told that you're gonna <laughs> Oh, very close, very comparable. You fought fucking hard for that. <laughs> yes, you, I like, did. Now that I think about it, like, <laughs> it took about four or five times over for you to be able there to were, do what you did. There were a lot of sh a lot of tears shed. There were a lot of moments of frustration. Um, hundreds and hundreds of moments where I broke down, literally in tears, thought I'm never gonna, they're, oh, no, they're never gonna let me I, I know I can do it, but they're never going to let me. And then... You had four given notes. A lot of, you had multiple like times, pretty much no, so you can't do it. Multiple times from the highest levels told it's no. inspiring. And then... Holy shit, <laughs> You're a gift of God. I'm telling you. <laughs> no, this show is for anybody. For any person who gives up, Michael, on, oh, I, I, I dreamed of becoming a movie star. Oh, well, I can't do it. Or anyone who's like, oh, well, you know what? I didn't pass a medical examination. Screw being a doctor. 
Or, oh, you know what, I dreamed of becoming a CEO of the company, but I got let go. Oh, screw it, not, not my dream anymore. You defy the odds. The rules were stocked against you. It exactly. changed the rules. It's amazing, man. Literally changed the rules. Yeah. And uh, so, very fortunately, they allowed me to do that. Wow. Um, I called her up and I said, you know, thank you. And this was, this was when I, to me, this was the true victory. It was all, it was all worth it. From it was, yes, very much so. It, it, it was. It was worth every minute. Uh, and, and as painful as that journey was, it was the journey that made it worth it, not just the end result. People get too fixated on the end result, the podium. It's everything I learned along that process that for that. the rest of my life um, it's changed me in, in you know, an almost unlimited number of ways. Wow. And, but, but one thing that really, really stood out that she told me in our phone conversation was, no, thank you for showing us that this is a thing and that this can be done. She actually thanked me after. Wow. And that was very compelling. And that goes right back to not burning that bridge. You never know who's going to make the decisions. Um, yeah, she's at the highest level. Maybe someone else was going to come in or whatever. But you never know who that person's going to be. Another very important uh, lesson that I considered from that was you don't get what you want. It sucks. But, you know, I see, unfortunately, I see a lot of people in, in different contexts. They don't get what they want, and they, just, they get mad. And you're allowed to be mad. It's an emotional response. You also need to be tactful. And you need to be mad, and I'll explain this, in the right context. Yeah. Unleashing your anger on that person, not a good idea. Because what, what, would that, what would that have done? A couple of things, I think. One, it would have detracted from my point of... I can do this in that um, the argument could have been made. Look, he's, he's getting all emotional about this. Maybe he's just saying some of this stuff to get what he wants. And maybe we actually can't perhaps trust all of what he's putting anecdotally. Yeah, wow. And so that's a very important the thing because, side. yes, you need to take the emotion out of it. You need to be concise with your facts and, 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 and you know, stick to that stuff. Like you can't let yourself get ruled by emotion because when you start introducing emotion, you start saying things that you don't want to say, whether you can help it or not. How many people in relationships, in business, in life, whatever, crazy. coworkers, you know, their wives, their spouse, their boss, whatever, say things that they regret out of emotion. You end up reacting instead of responding. Exactly. Like, you make the wrong you make the wrong move and then it creates all sorts of potential pitfalls for you that don't need to be there. Wow. And even even throughout that four-year process, it was so hard so many times to see guys running out the calls. You see people going lights and sirens, even just driving, I see police car go by with lights and like, "Man, I can do that, but I'm not allowed." And yeah. then you want to intervene in so many of these situations, you want to go out and do stuff. But I had to, I had to check myself and stay essentially within my lane and do my thing, because you start, you start playing outside your position a little bit too much in that, mm -hmm. and then it, it creates that argument of how much can we really? Because that was a big thing too, what I was saying to them, and saying, hey, anecdotally, this is what I've done, and when I presented it to them, you know, I was calm, I, I wasn't. I wasn't demanding about it. I, it was just an unemotional, look, this is what I've done. These are the things that I've accomplished. Oh, these are the scores. This is how I performed. This is how I know I can handle this. All these things. And it, it never created that argument to be made against me. Mm -hmm. 
And it was funny wow. because when I, when I presented all my stuff in writing, mind you, um, it was interesting. The RCMP uh, officers that I was dealing with, some of the higher ops, actually wanted to make an exception and say, you know what, let's fly you to Ottawa and let you talk to them. Yeah. They it's wanted like, to. Look at this guy. They like, wanted. He's... They did. But uh, the decision came back of, no, we can't, which was frustrating to hear. Yeah. But I understand it. It makes sense. Look, if we let him come here, we open the door to everyone. We oh, can't do this. I see. And so Who I was. Kind of thing, right? And so I was limited to expressing myself on paper. And you knew. I bet you you knew that if you did have granted the opportunity to be face to face, the chances are highly more likely. Very much right? so. They I, see the emotion. They're they can put a, see how badly you are, are trying to uphold this argument. Right? I feel like that makes a big difference. It, it does make it face to face. That makes a huge difference. Right? Huge difference. How many people do you know that would have had? landed that you know would have landed that job had they made it face to face but yeah. the paper they submitted didn't get that's why enough. i know it's so neat you say that to go on just a quick tangent on the side is sure. when i think about other uh career choices people make such as consultants right i hear a lot of it in the uh, insurance realm of things yes when certain people who are you know disabled or, or get injured mm -hmm. or end up having uh, a whole like their life gets flipped and then they have to deal with the work Consultants are told not to see the patients. Everything's via phone call. Mm -hmm. Because have they, if they end up do seeing them face-to-face, -face, yep. they're highly more likely to, based off emotion, say yes. Very much and so. say, you know what, okay, we'll give you all the pieces of the pie. Very so much that, so. That can be very tough to deal with. Right? Just one in terms of the other side. No, that's side. very true. Actually, yeah. uh, one of the business electors I took actually talks about that very issue. Yeah. And company policies. And, you know, this person didn't do that, and they might lose their pension, but then their wife's at home. and. Yeah, you know they're widowed, and do, do we make the exception? But then we do it for everyone, and then we're bankrupt. And Thick there's all skin, these, man, right? Yeah, skin. it's crazy. But the uh, the other, I'd say, defining moment, if you will, of that conversation. So yeah. there, were, there were actually two. The first one was her thanking me for for showing that this could be a thing. Yeah. And then the second one was because uh, then I just I just started blobbing away, you know, thank you, you know, like, uh, as you read in my submissions, I, I've done this, I've done this, I've done that, I've done that. And she said, no, we, we know, like, you, we actually didn't have any questions for you. You answered everything. We, there was nothing that was unaddressed, which was my goal right from the start. That's huge. I wanted to make sure that there was nothing that they could go after. <laughs> I wanted to make that document bulletproof. I didn't want there to be a single unanswered question of how to address a certain risk factor, a certain prop situation, you know, how to mitigate risk, how, how the risk could be publicly accepted. I wanted that document to stand on its own. How long was it? Not long, sorry, but how, I guess, how many pages was this? How many words? <laughs> uh, if you consider every draft, I don't, oh man, it, it would be perhaps 1,500 to 2,000 pages, but the final, wow. the final, the final draft would have been several dozen pages that had been drafted many times over wow. with dozens of other pages of supporting documents. You pretty of, much wrote a book. More or less. In it, a sense. In a sense, yeah. Because it was, there were, I don't know, maybe a couple hundred pages of supporting documents from the case studies that I've yeah. essentially developed, if you will, in a sense. Um, the, uh, you know, some of the arguments that, that they had had that mirrored my own and then, and then my own arguments and my own, all my stuff, all the things I had done. 
Um, wow. Because there were there were several doc there were, there were multiple documents, multiple multiple Tons. documents, Tons and, and it amounted to several hundred pages. I'd say, I want to say four hundred, but I could be wrong on that. I can't remember. But in its entirety, it would have been a couple, at least a couple of thousand, with with the drafts that. There, yeah, there were tons of arguments, or rather, tons of documents that never even made it to the final submission phase. Yeah. Um, it put a lot of thought and energy into it. It consumed sure. me. It consumed me for a long time, and it impacted me. It uh, it really impacted me. Um, Total time frame, Michael, from the moment <laughs> you started to defend your case, from the, the even before you submitted it for the first time to the last to getting that gratifying yes. How long? How much time oh, did you spend? How many months? Close to four years. Wow, four years! Every single day, I allotted time to it. And that was every single day. Every which you were single not working the job you were fighting for to work. Oh, even days I worked. My bosses periodically. Hey, you're done all your work. Yeah, if you want, you can take a bit of time for your thing. It's work related. Sure, thank you. I will do that actually. Awesome. Or I would That's find cool. ways to to do stuff that would fall in line with that was my ambitious. goals. Yeah. Wow. Um, and going back to jiu-jitsu, that was another reason I started jiu-jitsu was how do I demonstrate proficiency in hand-to-hand combat when I can't go back and do the training? I'll start a bunch of martial arts. So I started several different types of martial arts. That's so cool. that was my initial reason, if you will, for starting jiu-jitsu. And yeah. I had never done it prior to losing the vision. And it was like therapy. It, anyone who's going through anything in life, I, I cannot recommend jiu-jitsu enough yeah. It it was the one place I went where, oh, what happened to your eye? Because everyone thinks you got into a fight, right? Because, oh, you're yeah, grappling yeah, yeah, and doing yeah. stuff, whatever. Oh, I had cancer. Oh, okay. Cool. Let's roll. Done. Yeah. Go. Nobody no cared. Bullshit. Nobody cared. It didn't matter. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you had cancer? Here's a paper cutter choke. Yeah, yeah, wow. It, like, w- nobody it treated me. It was 120%. Let's go balls to the walls. And you're doing this yeah. because you love it. And, and as I did it, I realized, this is phenomenal. Every cop should do this. Yeah. Every cop should do this. You, the amount of... I, I use it today. I've used it multiple times. Absolutely. Multiple times in my job. You're able to protect yourself and do it in a way where you're not going to kill the person or even hurt them. Exactly. It's amazing. You, you get phenomenal control. Phenomenal control. Yeah. You want to fight? Okay. Take down, side control. <laughs> it's like, sure, come at me with something. Yeah, knee on belly, like, you know, paper cutter, stop fighting, okay, paper cutter off. Look, yeah. I don't want to hurt you. You don't have to punch people. They you don't get hurt. You don't get hurt. down, too. Like, you could break oh, someone's totally. down. Knee on belly? so badly. That's, that's like a neutron star on your rib cage, man. <laughs> yeah. Knee on belly is the worst. That <laughs> takes agree. all fight out of people. Yeah, I've used brutal. it several times, and it's, it's perfectly in line with pain compliance techniques. Yeah. We got all sorts of pain compliance techniques that we're taught, you know, joint locks, things like that. Yeah. Stop fighting, you add a bit of pain, they stop, they yeah. comply, you ease up the pain. Well, that's literally jujitsu in so many ways. Absolutely. And, and you get phenomenal control. You yeah. don't, like your risk of injury plummets. Yeah. Um, it's, it's so much better. It's so true. And, and I so quickly fell in love with it. it that's was, awesome. It's a perfect I, uh, fit, the perfect I, time in your life. Yeah, right? it, it was it was exactly what I needed at that time in my life. Yeah. I needed something to separate from work, but ironically was still beneficial in a way Yeah. because I couldn't find anything to separate myself from work Yeah. because I couldn't shut it out of my mind. Yeah. Um, so jujitsu, ironically, I went there to help me get operational and, and in a number of different ways, like ad- adapting, excuse me, adapting to depth perception, totally. uh, you know, hand-to-hand combat, all that kind of stuff. But yeah. Um, ironically, so it helped, but ironically, took my mind off work all the time. 
Yeah. Can't think about work when you're when you're rolling. I can't at all. If it's you the think only about- thing you can think of. Yeah. It is honestly, Michael, the one and only thing I do in my life that allows me to stay so in the moment. Yeah. Outside of doing podcasts, of course. <laughs> yeah. But like realistically, like it keeps me in such a peaceful place. Right? And I feel like for you it, it allows you to it creates this outlet for you where you're one able to stay creative because it's up to you mm-hmm. to go from point A to point B, however way you should with what you know. But two, it helps you stay p- back to patience. You need so much patience in jujitsu. Very much so, and right? it really uh, it really wears you down. Uh, and that's again why there's such a high attrition rate. Yeah. I would argue because a lot of people they just they give up after a while. Yeah. Oh, this is too much. I'm not progressing. I'm being blocked. I, you know, whatever. Yeah. It's very when I when I actually think about it, um, it, it very much in many ways parallels the battle that I went through to get operational. In that. You sometimes make headway, other times you regress, other yeah. times you're stalled. Great point. Um, the patience aspect of it, uh, it it's they're, they're very relatable in many ways. It's like you're forcing yourself to face defeat, pretty much. Yeah. From the moment you shake hands with a guy and, and roll, there's going to be moments along the way from the beginning of the round where you might be in a position of, of uh, the other person being in dominance. Yeah. And it's like, okay, well, what do you do? How do you react? I can really figure out one's personality and how they actually must act in their everyday life just based <laughs> off of rolling with them, right? Yep. Because it's it's in their innate nature, right? You have them in like this beautiful rear naked choke. Okay, are they going to get up right away? Or are they, are they going to do their <laughs> best to like survive and get out? And yep. Even if it's just a couple of guys rolling at the gym having fun, you get to see that. So it's Absolute. beautiful to see, right? Absolutely. I, I very much agree. Uh, you roll with someone in jiu-jitsu and you can see certain segments of their personality yep. and not certain things about them to an extent. Yeah. No, very absolutely. much so. It's very neat, actually. So. Wow. I want to I wanna recognize something that we we just need to kind of conclude in that conversation. Sure. With, uh, the RCMP situation sure. when you got the yes. Yes. When you said don't build bridges, I feel like it's really important to recognize that had you have reacted with emotion, and, and let's say, for lack of a better term, pissed off, mm-hmm. you know, the national defense. Yep. I bet you from the moment you would have still, maybe you might have not realized it, oh, I'm going to build this case, and yep. I, I got mad a few times, I reacted with emotion. Could you agree that had you done that and still built the case, she probably would have saw it, maybe saw one page, and went, oh, yeah, this guy, the way he reacted with me, the way he kind of ticked me off, I'm I, not going to bother. I very much agree with that. I think, uh, because again, going back to human emotion, now this person views me in a negative light. I'm negatively, they've got a negative predisposition towards me yeah. because of that. And whether you try to be objective and neutral or not, I mean, yes, there's many jobs where it requires you to be that many roles in which that's a requirement, but people are still human. Yeah. People are still going to make decisions on, on things to some extent, even at a subconscious level. Absolutely with that and I had to be I had to be like that the whole time and and not even not even once I got policy changed once I got back on the road I've been back on the road for a year and a half now roughly um and when I got back it wasn't like oh I did it I'm here I'm good uh I'm just continuing on everyone's watching me everyone in headquarters everyone in Ottawa a lot more pressure. I'm the first guy doing this yeah. in the history of the force. It's never been done before. Yeah. Is this going to work? Is he going to pull it off? Is it good on paper and for reasons that no one could predict? Not good. Wow. And lots it, of pressure. Lots of pressure. Even yeah. my instructor courses. 
Like the, and this is where I, I got acclimated to that type of pressure. I'm taking an instructor level course and I'm in tactical training section. What do you suppose would have happened if I failed that course? Would I have kept my position in training? Maybe, maybe not. It would have certainly worked against me. Yeah. And how many people do you think would have blamed it because of my eye? Whether or not it had anything to do... Hey, no, he failed because of his lack of knowledge. That's yeah, it, but so his eye. There's so many variables. It, maybe it was a lack of sleep. Is he sick? Is uh, anything. It, it would have come... I strongly suspect that it would have come down to, yeah, maybe it was this or that, but probably blame the eye as well. Which is the sad reality, right? Correct. And so I had a lot to overcome there. And even once I got back to the road, okay, I'm back, I can't screw up. Wow. So... I, uh, fortunately, everything went well. I've, I've been involved uh, without obviously getting into too much detail because some cases are still uh, ongoing, so I can't talk about those. Yeah, but um, I've been involved. I've been fortunate to have been involved in a, in a number of very different dynamic situations yeah. where I was essentially able to prove this isn't just a thing on paper. I did this. Um, High-speed chases, um, armed and barricaded subjects were... They're literally in the house. They flashed a gun at us, whatever. Wow. Surrounding the place. Um, these are real life situations. These are real life situations yeah. with, yeah, like there was one, uh, we could hear the gunshots being fired. Um, like also, you know, uh, people that have fought with us, fought with me, uh, foot chases, arresting dangerous, prolific offenders, taking guns and drugs off the street in vehicle stops and things like that. Wow. Does uh, actually hundreds now of arrests, I would say. Um, and, that's in the span of a year and a half and ironically six months into that I was put in a full time supervisory position in an acting role because we had mm -hmm. a vacant corporal position so that you know hey can you be the acting corporal yeah no problem we've got two corporals and a sergeant right. uh, and then many times uh, due to various staffing reasons I was the only supervisor on shift Wow. so now you've not only entrusted me to do this but to do all these other things as well Definitely. and I've just you know you take those stepping stones and that just brings one other lesson to mind Please, as well. Yeah, Humility. Be humble. Yeah. After I accomplished all of that, that policy change, all that crazy stuff, and I went back to the road, paperwork had changed quite a bit, as you can imagine. Yeah. Policies, procedures, all sorts of things. I had oof, 10 years of experience at the time, 10 years service. Okay, yeah. And in various roles, I'd worked traffic, I'd worked you know, general patrol uniform, I'd worked variety. drug section, criminal intelligence, tactical training section, all these different things. But I went in there with 10 years and, hey, I just changed national policy. I'm here to work. Um, some of you guys are going to know stuff that I don't, so I'm going to yeah, come to you. Please catch me I, up. I would literally go to guys with a year of service. That's hey, I've got 10 times year service, but I actually don't know how to do this. Can you show me? Yeah. And just doing that in and of itself, you win a lot of respect. As opposed to coming in there and being like, oh, guys, well, I got to stick up my ass now because I defended myself for this long and I, I made it now. So exactly. No, one likes that. no right? it doesn't. And, it, and it, it's unfortunate. I think it's unfortunate when people do that, where they go yeah. and they posture up. Oh, I'm the, OK, but now you're taking away from yourself. You're, detr exactly. you're detracting from what you've done. Wow. Um, and so throughout that entire process, yeah. have humility. Yeah. Even even when you're at the top of your game doing stuff, you still need to have that. Yeah. Because you're not always going to be there. You might fall back down. Um, it's, I think, a very important lesson. Because people are going to remember that. They will. People are going to remember that. If you, if you ever, you know, postured up to someone or, or looked down on someone, people, you'd be surprised what people are, what people remember years yeah. down the road. That first impression in, in many ways. Yeah. Right? To some people. 
do you find, Michael, that if you could think about really what it is about becoming an RCMP officer that has led you to fight, really, not just for your life, but for your career, what is it, what is it that made you fight so hard? What, what is it about that? becoming an officer that even since the day and time <laughs> when all this started, what, what made you fall into this and love it so much? Because I don't, honestly, you are the one and only guest I've had who I know damn well who would be willing to fight this hard for their career. <laughs> and I interview young I bring people Thank on this you. show who love their career, man. Like, mm -hmm. they, like that's why we started this. Because we want to talk to people who love what they do. Mm -hmm. We're the only one who I can guarantee you, out of everybody, I, I, I don't know anyone, <laughs> even in my life, who would fight this hard. So what is it? I want to know. What is it that made you fight this hard because you love doing this so damn much? Uh, first off, thank you very much. That's a, that's a huge compliment. Yeah, no problem, <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, that is a tough question. Um, that's a very tough question, and yeah. it actually took me a long time to figure that out. I uh, and I don't want to get too too far off topic about this, so I'll I'll, sure. I'll uh, just drift a little bit out and kind of explain how I came to this answer. So, uh, as you can imagine, cancer. Um, going through cancer, the whole terminal diagnosis, the uh, getting operational, having your identity, literally your identity ripped away from you. It, that's literally what it was. Other than cancer, that was, that was the worst thing I'd ever been through in my life, mm -hmm. was having that taken away from me. Even Absolutely. the vision loss in the eye. It was easier, far easier to adapt to this than it was to reconcile that they had ripped my identity away. And as you can imagine that, as well as a whole plethora of other issues I've had with, you know, sick parents and, and uh, uh, some other stuff at work, some, some dynamic situations, we'll leave it at that and stuff. So as you can imagine, uh, that left me with a certain amount of uh, psychological trauma. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no PTSD, strangely enough, uh, mm -hmm. which, is, which is fine. It, it's, it's okay to be fine, so to speak. Yeah, um, yeah. Not everyone develops that. Everyone's different, and there's a Absolutely. wide spectrum of, of what you can get. So yeah. uh, my thing, what I got out of that, was mountains and mountains of psychological trauma that I didn't know I had. And there was an event at work uh, that led me to think, you know, I should probably go and talk to a psychologist. Was this before? This is after I got operational. So after, after I got operational, I was, okay. uh, I was, we'll say present in an officer involved at an officer involved shooting. I'll just I'll leave it at that. It's nothing bad. It's, yep. um, it's just it's just still being looked at, okay. and before they've rubber stamp that process and say, hey, this was all good. Yeah. Um, it's just best that I not talk about it. So Absolutely. I'll just leave it at that. But, yeah. but after that event, I, uh, and, uh, and I thought, you know, I should probably talk to someone about this because it, it was the first time that I had, had, uh, had seen an officer that I thought was dead. He'd been shot and I thought he was dead. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and we'll just kind of leave it at that. And I thought, you know, I should probably talk to someone. So, and I had seen psychologists for the cancer thing, and, and, yeah. and they, oh, you seem to be managing fine and, and move along. Uh, but psychology is interesting. Finding a, a, a good fit psychologist is, is very much in line with one of the other lessons I talked about with advocating your own health care. Yeah. Uh, you got to find the right fit for you. You got to find the right psychologist. That, and, um, that humanizes it. Exactly. And, and you just, great. Let's get along. Yeah, and you just click with, right? Like, look at jujitsu, right? There's some instructors that people just don't click with. They just don't learn from them. There's other instructors that 
it's the perfect fit, and they just excel. Yeah, and, you're preaching to the choir. Yeah, now, exactly. Right in my life. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and 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 so um, finding the right healthcare person, is, or a psychologist, or doctor, or whatever the case is, is very much the same thing. Definitely. Um, and and so I ended up seeing a psychologist, and it was essentially for that 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 call, which really was the tip of the iceberg. And what she uncovered from that was just mind-blowing. It was earth-shattering to me. All this deeply rooted psychological trauma that I didn't even realize I had that was there. And it was like a weight off my shoulder that I didn't know existed because you just walk around with it for so long. You're like, oh, this is just what life is. And it was through, and this is why I got into this conversation, and it is through that process that I found sort of essentially what it was that drove me for that. Mm-hmm. I, I, I kind of sort of knew it. It's hard to explain. I think at a subconscious level, it was a driving force and it was always there. But mm-hmm. doing police work was it, the best way that I can figure to explain it is it was my it gave me the capacity to do good. I could catch bad guys. I could change people's lives. I, I, and I'm not disillusioned to think I could go out and fix every problem as much yeah. as I'd like to. I'm often reminded that I can't. But, I, you know, like there's... And there's some situations you're just never going to fix because it's well beyond your scope of, of, of what you do or what you're even and able sure to do. And I'm sure you saw the realization of that after. Yeah. And, and it, right? Exactly. And it, it it's like it just clicked. Like I, I'm literally sitting there with her because she, she... Like that was kind of where our conversation was going. And it was, this, this was taken away from me. They took away my ability to do good. Uh-huh. It's gone. Well, yeah, but you can still do other. It's not the same. It's not the same. It's not the same as, as they're different. Yeah. They're different. Yes, I could go do charity and donate money. I could yeah. go volunteer. I could go do this. I could go do that. I could still do good things, but it's, it's different. And I got a glimpse into, into that during my battle, actually. That Navy SEAL I referenced, yes. um, Adam Brown is his name. Unfortunately, he's, he's since deceased as a result of a, an ambush in yeah. a mission he was on, which had nothing to do with the vision loss. It was just anyone in that position would Absolutely. have been. It, it's the risk you take as yeah. a Navy SEAL. Exactly. So, but there was a part in that book that I literally, it, it tore me apart that I couldn't talk to him because I so badly wanted to talk to him. Yeah. Because in that book, there was... I, I, there was a, a part of it. It was in the, I can't remember the page number, but I distinctly, vividly remember it was in the low, lower left-hand side of the page as I'm reading through, and it described to him, it, the author did a phenomenal job of, of getting information from his, his wife, his family, his friends, his coworkers, everyone, about what he was going through, what he was feeling, and he put it in words that I, I don't think I could have, where he explained that, Yes, he's still doing all of this good in the Navy SEALs, but it's not the same as going out. And and it was like, word for word. it was that click. I was like, that's me. I couldn't come up with those words, but that's me. That's exactly how I feel. Someone finally knows. And then it was obviously many years later in speaking to my psychologist where she sort of pulled that out. Yeah. And and I was like, that's why. That's wow. why they took it away from me. It wasn't. It was. It was a multifactorial thing for sure. Yeah. It was my identity. It was how I identified it. It was. It, it meant so much to me. It's. It's what I grew up with. Yeah. But it was this like 
deeply rooted thing in me where that was my capacity to yeah. do good. Absolutely. You take a drunk driver off the road, maybe he doesn't smoke a family and take, yeah. take them out. You go to even just some of the calls, and I notice them more now. Some of the calls that I go to, I'll be dealing with someone and I'll realize you need a little bit more of my time. I've, I've done everything I need to do, but you need a bit more of my time right now. You're having a really bad day. I'm going to stay here. And I, yeah, maybe it'll be a little bit more paperwork at the end of my shift, whatever, but let's talk for half an hour. Let's do whatever. And wow. And then seeing that the difference that makes to them, that's amazing. I've literally had people come up and hug me after and I'm like, wow. Hey, it's fine. Like you don't have to thank me. You change their life along with those people who are in their lives just based off that little extra time. It's it is amazing what you can do. And this is one of the reasons I love the job so much. You have so much freedom. You could do as much or sadly as little as you want. There's a very wide spectrum of what people choose to do in yeah. this job. Based off of maybe like what their, like we call it in business, their, uh, their uh, KPIs, so their key okay, performance yeah. indicators. Like yeah. what they're being really critiqued on yeah. to ensure they're still getting paid yep. and getting the job done. Yep, exactly. Right? And, and, and I get it. Like you do X amount more, you don't get paid more. Why would you do it? Well, because it's your job, but I mean, that's another argument to be made. But you know, you look at the, the scope and the capacity and the spectrum of what you are capable of doing in that job and the differences that you can make. And I know it sounds all idealistic, but it, it really is a thing. Mm-hmm. Come out for a ride along, I'll even show you. Absolutely. No, <laughs> if so you true. want. It, it's, and I think people sometimes get a little disheartened where they see situations that are not rectifiable, that it's not within their power, no matter what they do to fix it. But you can't focus on that. You can't focus on the court case that gets tossed out because of an absurd technicality or on the situation where, you know, this person's uh, assaulting their spouse and there's nothing that you can do to protect those kids or or whatever. You don't have the grounds to charge. If if you get too fixated on that, you'll eat yourself alive. Yeah. Fixate on what you can do. Focus on what you can do. Exactly. And that's where you can take heart. Wow. And make differences. From a perspective, Michael, of, of somebody who... Um, has, has heard what you've gone through and, and, and here's what people view officers as in our day and age. If I could put it in, in one way, if, if we had more officers like you, honestly, on the ground, Thank we you. have a safer Edmonton and, and a safer world, man. realistically, right? Like, I, I, it's sad to hear the certain negative biases that some officers get. And um, I, I'm sure it's just all based off of people's personal experience or what happened so, to a family member. And, and, and I, I, I won't... Uh, it is unfortunate that those things exist, yeah. and, and I won't defend. Um, I won't defend the bad ones. I, I hate to say it, there yeah. are some bad ones, and you're going to have that in every career, Absolutely. every career. Every Lawyers, one. doctors, judges, yeah. nurses, no, teachers. I appreciate you saying that. Every every professional career you have, you're going to have people that are bad, that are corrupt, yeah. that are lazy, and just don't do their jobs. Yeah. Um, I've seen the spotlight on police where people don't do their. They don't do their jobs or they commit illegal acts and it makes everyone else look bad. Yeah. And it's unfortunate that those people exist. Um, it's a sad reality, but yeah. it is what it is. Absolutely. I wish we didn't have anyone like that. I yeah, wish no, those, so true. that mindset didn't exist, but unfortunately it does. Thankfully in a small, very small percentage. Yeah. To me, no percentage is acceptable. Exactly. 
how do you fix that problem? I wish I had the answers. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true, man. It could be tough, but it's, it's good to know that there's good ones out there such as yourself. I, mean, I just do what I can. There's, yeah. I've met lots of really, really good police officers along the way. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of good ones out there. I can say Absolutely. that for sure. I think when I think about, like, just to relate, right? Sure. When I had my injury, right? Like, I shattered my jaw on both sides of my face. Mm-hmm. And just some of our listeners, they've, they've probably heard this countless times, yeah. right? <laughs> But um, I find a relation with you, and this might be so new to some of our viewers or even just news to you, is mm-hmm. when I broke my jaw, first thing I heard from my parents specifically, just obviously as you know, just because they love you and they want to see you in one piece, yeah. and those around me were like, all right, well, you had a good run. And you know, maybe maybe now you just feel like they're teaching. And I really did. I never got back in the cage. Yeah. But jujitsu allowed me to be able to be in that competitive space and still feel like it's fulfilling my same desires. Yes why I stick with it, right? And for you, when we think about, again, the career choice that, that led you to become an officer, be on the front line, I ask you to go back to your why. And it's really because you love to save lives. You love feeling like that superhero. You do it because you want to see uh, and ensure that people's lives are, are, are sustained and stable. And for me in competing, same thing. When I go back to why I needed to fuel it in something similar, it's because my life won't be the same without it. I feel like I'll have no That's more, exactly it will it. no longer feel like my will to live is being accomplished, right? So I, I want this to kind of be a message for people who are listening to your episode to understand that if, if the going gets tough, defy the odds, Yeah. right? Like be somebody who you can go back and everyone might think you're crazy. I'm sure even <laughs> when you were doing this, you probably had like, a, just stop. You have, oh man, you, you have no idea. So many people, yeah. so many people. I, I had people... And, and it was tough because there were some people who I could see them saying it. And I, I thought, you know, you're imparting your own weakness upon me. Yeah. You're putting yourself, I could see it. Because they themselves they, have probably given up. You're, they're, they're putting themselves in my shoes in and they're sense. thinking, that's not going to happen. Yeah. He's not going to be able to do that. If I had it, I couldn't do that. A hundred percent. There's some people like that. And I get it. And, and that's us looking at it differently. I, I bet you other people can argue. Because I like to play both sides, Absolutely. Right? I bet you they're kind of thinking that maybe it's too time-consuming for you. Yep. However, for you when, you, when you even said four years, you didn't say that in a way like you got four years gone from your life. That's your life's work. That's you showing that you'll spend every goddamn second and day, even outside of work if you can, to build up a case for you to do what you were ultimately meant to do. And, and that time certainly was not wasted. I, what I learned through that journey and process, I can't measure that. No. Um, and I, uh, interestingly enough, going going back to, to people that, oh, you know, you're crazy. Because I had people literally say, that's crazy. You're never going to. Because it wasn't just what I was trying to do. It was changing the organizational mindset, which yeah. is a huge. A you, big you don't just change the RCMP's mind on something by yourself. You don't just tell them, hey, this is a thing. Trust me. Let's do it. Yeah. Um, but after I got it, I actually had many of those very same people call me. Yeah. And I had people that didn't even tell me what they thought and called me and apologized to me and said, I'm sorry, I didn't think you were ever going to achieve this. I never even had the heart to tell you. Wow. Because it's, it's, it's some of the people that are close to you. that, And, and this is, I suppose, another lesson to, to be expected for people. Um, sometimes when you're trying to accomplish something that's that's so insane for lack of a better term you're going to have people close to you that are going to 
and it, out of uh, and, and it's not out of, of hate or malice or anything bad. It's it's, it's they want to protect you. Yeah. They, they don't want to see you fail. They don't want you to put yourself in what they think is an impossible position to yeah, succeed, exactly. to have the end result of failure, and then get hurt. So they try to dissuade you from achieving that goal. And I had some people I was close to that, you know, hey man, you've done so much good. You can do so much good here, here, and here. Uh, you're just, you know, I, I'm just worried about you. I don't think this is an achievable thing. And that was really tough to hear because that was from people that I respected and still to this day respect because I understand the reasons they were saying that for. But when someone close to you tells you that, it's, it, never mind one person, multiple people that are close to you tell you that and they mean it it's in their it's in the inflection of their voice yeah it's very tough you don't know how to take it but again it goes back to that like don't give up like yeah. because if you this you know not to go too far into all these different lessons here because i could go on for days yeah, yeah, this, <laughs> but um the second the second that you concede defeat and don't pick yourself up because you're going to have your moments where you drop and, and you're going to be in the gutter Definitely. and you're going to have to pick yourself up. I had literally hundreds, hundreds of those moments mm-hmm. on a, they were every week. It would hit me every week. It would hit me uh, sometimes multiple times a week and you just pick yourself up and you carry on. Um, and, and you'll have a lot of those ups and downs throughout, but the second that you concede defeat and, and acknowledge to yourself that you can't do that, you've automatically lost automatically. You have a 0% chance of succeeding when you do that. 0% chance. It's automatically done. Mm -hmm. So it goes a little bit beyond uh, just, you know, working hard. Because you you, you work hard enough, you'll you'll be able to get your thing. You'll be able to, for the most part, get what you want. Obviously, there's caveats and, 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 uh, limitations to that to an extent. But, I mean, this was something that I knew. I knew I could do. Definitely. I knew it from the start. And so I never conceded that. Definitely. Never fully. What's fair to say here is you managed to 120% convince yourself prior to convincing anybody else. Even yes. if it's the national defense of RCMP. Even if it's you know, yeah. as high up as they are and as, as, as unlikely as it what? seems to the public eye, you managed oh, man. to find what? the right evidence to convince yourself. And that's just it. Like you actually, uh, I never thought of it that way, but of me being the first person to convince, but that's actually yeah. really good advice. And that's very accurate. Yeah. Uh, I was the first person that I had to convince. Yeah. And then after that, uh, it just, it climbed to these ridiculous levels. Yeah, that's like, what I was able to. Because yeah. you realize that you knew, you knew what was right in front of you. It was just now a matter of putting all the pieces together. And that's what, and that's what kept me going a lot of the times was knowing that I could, wow. that I had convinced myself. Because when, you know, dealing with these people, Director General of Occupational Health and Safety, National Policy Center, uh, you know, National Medical Advisor. These are big, big name people. I, I felt like a, a child, like an infant in a room full of giants and yeah. titans. Yeah. But I knew that I could do it. Absolutely. So I'm just I'm very fortunate that they've afforded me that chance yeah. as a result of all that work. And as you, well. know what, you know what's amazing is you're 32, right? 32 now, correct. This is just the beginning. <laughs> I know. That's the same. Oh, man. getting to a beautiful journey we don't Oh, some of this, like, some of the stuff that's come out of this. I just wanted my job back, man. Yeah. I just wanted to go do some good stuff again. <laughs> I, some of the stuff that's coming out of this now, like, I, I'm now looking at, you know, promoting, and I've got a, a new sense within me of, I don't like what I went through, and I don't, 
I don't want anyone to go through that again. Totally. Uh, no one should have to go through that. Yeah. Um, even on that topic, there were actually a couple of guys that uh, they got back operational after my thing. Two other guys with wow. permanent blindness in one eye that were in the RCMP huge. that got back operational. Based again. off of the work and the dedication and time you put in. Yep. And I'm working with some people right now Amazing. that are trying to apply with vision loss in one eye. Yeah. Where they've sent me their thing. I'm like, you know what? I'll step up for you. Wow. Let me let me call the National it's Medical. Tur- it turns into something. Yeah. Let me call the National Medical Advisor, whose phone number I actually still have, <laughs> and let's see if we can change some more policy. Don't burn bridges, right? Exactly. That's amazing. So um, it, it's uh, oh, it's phenomenal. But you know, I've but going back to that promotion train, it's not it's never something I I was super passionate about. But now, here's my capacity to make some changes on a way bigger scope on, yep. to widen my locus of control. It took me four years as a as a constable. I'm, I'm like frontline rank. I, I'm you know kind of at the, at the bottom, so to speak. Mm-hmm. What can I do? What can I change? If I start to move up, that load of control widens. And I just, I don't know. I think there's a lot of things that, and this isn't a criticism of, of some of the existing people that are leaders at, at this time. There's lots of different things that preclude them from doing certain things. But nonetheless, I honestly believe we can do better. I really do. Absolutely. I think every business, any organization, whether it's police, military, private organizations, anyone can do better. To, to, to think you can't do is foolish. Yeah. And, to have. And, and sometimes perhaps that simply requires someone with a different thought process, mm-hmm. different way of seeing things, different way of viewing things. And I've, in my mind, already, you know, already formulated some things that I think could be done better That's and would like to affect some of those changes. And yeah. rank, generally, within, within any organization, can... Uh, essentially, I, I, I would argue, for the most part, can facilitate change. For sure. The higher up you are, the more readily you can facilitate change. Absolutely. No, it's so, so, uh, so now it's just you know another opportunity to perhaps change some things and do it some is. things for good. Yeah, no, definitely. Honestly, that's why I'm so excited, Michael, in the next coming years to you know follow your journey and still, <laughs> still stay close. And Absolutely. To see some of those changes that I damn well you're going to make. It's amazing. I want to, you know, as we conclude... Um, just coming to uh, you know realization here and and appreciate you for a second and you know with everything that you said Michael from you know being patient to not burning bridges to you know believing in yourself and everything that you are capable of being able to do mm-hmm. you you exude that in so many ways man like you're somebody who uh, Really, I know I've said this once already, but you define the odds. No matter what's happened to you in your life or in career, you're a great example of somebody who shows that, you know what, don't give up. Because no yeah. matter how hard you continue to try, find the evidence, work your fucking ass off to, to, to get everything you need to build a case around yourself, mm-hmm. you will win. And, and you don't stop until someone says, listen, you got to stop or else we're going to have to you know, yeah. give you the boot or something. Yeah, exactly. You know? So I'm telling you right now, man, like, if you want to make a movie out of your life, I'm probably only lucky. He does the videos. You can, make, you can make a movie out of this experience because it, it definitely, you got me right in the heart, man. And that, that's what matters a lot. So I thank you so much for your time. And at this point, I feel like you've already mentioned it in so many ways. I ask every guest this. Sure. I want to ask you, you know, everyone we bring on board here, we, we believe they exemplify the second floor mentality. Mm-hmm. And uh, second floor really to us, as we say again and again, we mean that we bring, you know, 
certain individuals in our society over who uh, are, are a step up uh, above the rest, right? Mm -hmm. they, they challenge the norm, they, they go above and beyond such as yourself to ensure that they've, they've made it to where they are now, mm -hmm. right? Which is your perfect definition of that. And I want to know if, uh, if you haven't already mentioned, mm -hmm. you know, how do you define being on the second floor? Oh. That's a tough question. <laughs> yeah, like I know it's kind of tough. This is like the, the sunrise thesis. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how, how would I define that? Um, like for someone, and I can put it this way: for yeah, someone who listen to all of this and has been like, "Wow, like I feel like you know they want that, they get it, they have everything, but what is it that you have done or that you do to continue to think this way?" It's the secret sauce. Yeah, I'm just trying. Yeah, I'm just trying to think of the best way to to sort of exemplify that and explain that. I mm -hmm. I would suggest that it's it's not it's not the physical, it's not the knowledge, it, it's not the financial. All those things you can acquire, you can acquire strength and endurance and stamina and money and knowledge and all. You can get all those things. Um, they're acquisitions, nothing more. It. it it's the it's the mindset. It's the driving mindset. That's the differential I would suggest between many people. You look at acquisitions, things that people have. You get people that are born into it. You get people that are born into nothing. And how many times do those people switch places? How many rich people do you see that crater ended up living on the streets? How many people do you see that come from literally from rags? Once you reach a status, from, doesn't mean you stay there forever. No, up or down. no. It, it's just you, know, point. you rolled the dice. Here's where you landed. But it's your mindset that's going to change where you end up in that. Um, and, and just, you know, for me, it, it was, uh, you've kind of already touched on some of those points, but it, it, was, it was never giving up, never, never conceding the defeat. I'll actually, there's one other thing I want to sort of bring up along Please. that line. Yep. It, it, was a, it was a defining moment for me, actually, when I uh, was out with one of my instructors in the tactical training unit. And, and this is going to speak to the mindset that I'm talking about. Um, I had the carbine, which it looks like an assault rifle. It's, it's basically a long-barreled gun. It yeah. gives us a different response option for, for dynamic situations where we can't readily get out a tactical team and things like that. So it's a, it's a fairly, fairly serious weapons platform. This thing means business, and it's got a scope on it with a red dot for sight. So picking it up, I can't shoot it right-handed because I, I'm... Yeah. cranking my head like that so when I for the very first time on that weapons platform changed and started shooting and manipulating it left handed I was like this is brutal and I looked at my instructor I'm like man I don't know if I can do this just do it do it and then it kind of clicked in my head wait a minute if I don't and I was very comfortable with, with this instructor, so I, I was actually willing to show weakness in front of him, Definitely. whereas I wouldn't show it to anyone else. And I'd yeah. say, I, I don't think I can do this, man. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. Yeah. Uh, can I just do it like this? Can I get a riser to raise the scope up so I can still go right-handed? No, we can't do that. I'm going to do it left-handed. Okay. But it was that mindset of not creating excuses. Your excuses sound great, especially to you. Mm -hmm. Everyone's excuses always sound great to them. Yeah. And you might have valid excuses but they're going to take away from what you're trying to accomplish every single time. So it was at that moment that I, I think, really started to develop that mindset, that winning mindset of, of 
of being successful where I was not going to let it impede me in any way from accomplishing my goal. Yeah, that was that was I think really where it started. I don't get me wrong. I had the idea in my head right from the beginning. Yeah. Soon as hey, you're cancer free. I'm gonna get back. How do I do that? Uh, I can do it. I know I can, but how? Yeah. But then, it was at that point, which was much further along in my journey, where it was you got to stop creating excuses. You cannot create any excuses, or they will use them against you. Yeah. And I, I think it's. It's that and similar mindsets that put you on that second floor. It puts you above the rest. You can find an ocean of complainers, but how many people amongst them do you find where they change change their mindset? They go beyond just saying, hey, this is an issue. This is an issue. We're going to fix it. This is an issue. We're going to make this better. Definitely. That's That's the differential, I think. Yeah. The power of the mind, right? It's huge. The mind is stronger than anything else you have. Yeah. No, Absolutely. Lastly, Michael, for, for anyone out there who would like to connect with you or mm-hmm. uh, you know follow your experiences on social media in any way, sure. where can they find you? Uh, so I apologize in advance because my last name is really long and makes no sense. <laughs> we'll spell it out uh, on the screen. Yeah, we'll spell it out on the screen. We'll probably have to. Uh, but I'm on Facebook, um, Michael Yusjishin, and it's it's spells nothing like it's pronounced. Yeah. So you it's, want to just pr- uh, just spell it out? Yeah, for absolutely. It's it's J A S as in Sam. Yep. Z C Z Y S Z Y N. So yeah, good luck finding that. <laughs> but usually, if you start if you start typing it into Google, it actually usually pops up because there's that uh, um, a news story I done with the Global News there, awesome. and uh, usually they can find it that way. And then yeah, I'm on Facebook, Fantastic. I'm on Instagram sometimes, um, and yeah, I'm I'm very open to talking about this. Fantastic. Uh, if people have questions or even struggles in their own thing that's perhaps somewhat different from this but maybe they you know need a five minute talk about how to fix things i've had people call me for other issues hey i'm trying to get operational because of this issue you came to the right guy this is the process is how you do it nice so well there it is my friend ladies and gentlemen the one and only michael yes jishin yes (laughs) thank you my friend that's a wrap no worries thank you appreciate it man Thank you everyone for tuning in to the Second Floor Podcast. This episode was actually brought to you by LuxMarket.com. If you feel like you enjoyed this episode, please go on iTunes Podcast, give us a review, let us know what you think, and feel free to share this with a friend who you also believe would enjoy the episode.